right. <laughs> Am I live yet? Yeah. Morning. We were a little worried today because we, uh, we weren't sure from the reservations whether we could handle everybody, but it looks to me like there may be a couple seats left up there. But I think next year we're going to have to uh, find a different spot because it looks to me like we're up about 600 this year from last year. And to be on the safe side, we will seek out a larger spot. Now, there are certain implications to that because as some of the more experienced of you know, a few years ago we were... Uh, we were holding this meeting at the Joslin Museum, which is a temple of culture. And uh, we've now, of course, moved to uh, an old vaudeville theater. And the only place in town that can hold us next year, I think, is the Exarban Coliseum, where they have Kino and uh, racetracks. So we are sliding down the cultural chain, just as, just as Charlie predicted years ago. He, he saw all this coming. Uh, Charlie, I have some rather distressing news to report. There are always a few people that vote against everyone on the slate for directors, and there's maybe a dozen or so people do that. And then there are others that single-shot it, and they pick out people to vote against. And this will come as news to Charlie. I haven't told him yet, but he is the only one among our candidates for directors that received no negative votes uh, this year. <laughs> No, no need to applaud. I tell you, when you lose out the title of Miss Congeniality to Charlie, you know you're in trouble. <laughs> now, uh, I'd like to uh, like to tell you a little bit how we'll, we'll run this. We will we will uh, we will have the business meeting uh, in a hurry with cooperation of all of you, and then we will uh, introduce our managers. Uh, who are here, and then we will have a, uh, a Q&A uh, period. We will run that until 12 o'clock, at which point we'll break, and then at 12.15, if the hardcore want to stick around, we will have another hour or so until about 1.15 of, of questions. So you're free to leave, of course, anytime, and I've pointed out in the past that it's much better form if you leave while Charlie is talking rather than when I'm talking, but <laughs> the... Uh, Feel free anytime, but it, it, you, you can, you, if, if, if you're panicked and you're, and you're, and you're worried about being uh, conspicuous by leaving, uh, you, will, you will be able to leave at, uh, at noon. We will have uh, buses out front that will take you to, uh, to the hotels or the uh, airport or to any place in town in which we have a commercial interest. And we, we encourage you uh, staying around on that basis. Um, Let's have the, let's get the business of the meeting out of the way and then we can get on to more interesting things. Uh, My name is Michael Mullen from Omaha. Would you comment on the use of derivatives? I noticed uh, Dell Computer stock was off two and a half points Friday with the loss in derivatives. The question is about derivatives. We, uh, we have in this room uh, the author of the best, uh, uh, the best thing you can read on that, uh, uh, there was an article in Fortune about a month ago or so by Carol Loomis on derivatives, and, and uh, far and away is the best article that's been written. We also have some people in the room that do business in derivatives from Solomon, and um, it's, a, it's a very broad subject. Uh, it, 
as we said last year, I think someone asked what might be the big financial story uh, of the 90s, and we said we obviously don't know, but that if we had to pick a topic that it could well be derivatives because they, they lend themselves to the use of, of unusual amounts of, of leverage, and they're sometimes not completely understood by the people involved, and any time you combine ignorance and borrowed money, uh, you can get some pretty interesting consequences, and uh, particularly when the numbers get big. And you've seen that, of course, recently with the recent Procter & Gamble announcement. Now, I don't know the details of the P&G uh, uh, derivatives, but I, uh, I understand, at least from President, that what started out as interest rate swaps ended up with P&G writing puts on large quantities of uh, of uh, U.S. and I think one other country's bonds, and uh, anytime you go from selling soap to writing puts on bonds, you've made a big jump. Uh, uh, and it, 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 the ability to borrow enormous amounts of money, uh, combined with the chance to get either very rich or very poor very quickly, has historically been a recipe for trouble at some point. And that, that, derivatives are not going to go away. They serve useful purposes and all that. But I'm just saying that it, it, it has that potential. And uh, uh, we've seen a little bit of that. I can't think of anything that we've done that would, can you think of anything we do that approaches derivatives, Charlie? Directly? No. no. <laughs> so, so. I may have to cut him off if he talks too long. <laughs> <laughs> is, is there anything you would like to uh, add to your already extensive remarks? To I'm sorry. <laughs> no. Okay. In that case, we'll go to zone two. My name is Hugh Stevenson. I'm a shareholder from Atlanta. My question involves the company's investment in uh, the stock of Cap Cities. It's been my understanding in the past that that was regarded as one of the four quote-unquote permanent holdings of the company. Um, I, so I was a little bit confused by the disposition of one million shares. Uh, could you clarify that? Was my previous misunderstanding, was my previous understanding incorrect or has there been some change or is there a third possibility? Well, we, we have classified um, the Washington Post Company and, and, and Cap Cities and Geico and Coke uh, in the category of permanent holdings. And, but in the case of three of those four, the Washington Post Company, I don't know, maybe, maybe seven or eight years ago, Geico some years back, and now Cap Cities, we have participated in tenders where the company has repurchased shares. Now, the first two, uh, Post and, and uh, Geico, we participated proportionally. That was not feasible and incidentally not as attractive tax-wise anymore. The 1968 Tax Act changed the desirability of proportional redemptions of shares from our standpoint. That point has been missed by a lot of journalists in commenting on it, but, but it just so happens that, uh, that the commentary that has been written has been obsolete in some cases by six or seven years. Uh, 
But we did participate in the Cap Cities uh, tender offer just as we did in the Post and, and, and Geico. We still are by far the largest shareholder of Cap Cities. Uh, we think it's a superbly run operation in a business that, that, uh, that uh, is, looks a little tougher than it did uh, 15 years ago, but uh, looks a little bit better than it did 15 months ago. Charlie, you have anything on? Uh, no. <laughs> He's thinking it over now, though, before. <laughs> Zone 3. Good morning. My name is Howard Bask. I'm up from Kansas City, and uh, I've got a theoretical value question for you. Uh, if you uh, were to buy a business and you bought it at its intrinsic value, what's the minimum after-tax free cash flow yield you'd need to get? Well, the, um, uh, your question is if we were buying all of a business and we were buying it at what we thought was intrinsic value, what was the minimum? Correct. Present earning power or what the, pres the, the minimum discount rate of future? Streams. No, what's the uh, minimum current after-tax uh, free cash flow yield you'd we, need to get? We, we could conceivably buy a business. I don't think we, 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 we would be likely to, but we could, we could conceivably buy a business that had no current after-tax uh, cash flow, but we would have to think it was, had a, a tremendous future. But the, we would not find, obviously, the, the, the current figures, particularly in the kind of businesses we buy, tend to be representative, we think, of what's ha going to happen in the future. But, but that would not necessarily have to be the case. Uh, uh, you can argue, <clears throat> for example, in buying stock at a time when it uh, was losing significant money. Uh, uh, we didn't expect it to continue to lose significant money. But, but if, we think, if we think the present value of the future earning power is attractive enough compared to the purchase price, we would not we would not be, we would not be uh, overwhelmed by what the first year's figure would be. Um, Charlie, you want to add to that? Yeah, well, we don't care what we report in the first year or two of after buying anything. Well, I would say that that. Uh, in a world of 7% long-term bond rates that uh, we would certainly want to think we were discounting future after-tax streams of cash at, at at least a 10% rate. But that, that will depend on, on the certainty we feel about the business. The more certain that we feel about a business, uh, the closer we're willing to play it. We have to feel pretty certain about any business before we're even interested at all. But there, there's still degrees of, of certainty. And, and uh, uh, if we thought we were getting a, a stream of, of cash over the next 30 years that we felt extremely certain about, we would, we would, we would use a discount rate that would be somewhat, what, somewhat less than if, if it was one where we thought we might get some surprises in five or 10 years, possibility existed. Really? Nothing to add. Okay. Zone four. Um, Morris Spence from Omaha, Nebraska. You've made comments on several occasions about the intrinsic business value of the insurance operations. And in this year's report, you state that uh, the insurance business possesses an intrinsic value that exceeds book value by a large amount. 
larger in fact than is the case at any Berkshire, other Berkshire business. I was wondering if you would uh, explain in greater detail why you believe that to be true. Well, I, I, it, I, it's very hard to quantify as, as, as we've said many times in the report, but I think that it's clear that even taking fairly pessimistic assumptions that the excess of intrinsic value over caring value is higher uh, by some margin for the insurance business. And I think that the table in the report that shows you what our cost of float has been over the years and also what the trend of float has been over the years uh, would, uh, unless you thought that table had no validity for the future, I think that that table would tend to, to point you in the direction of, uh, of saying the insurance business does have a very significant excess of intrinsic value over carrying value. Very hard number to put, put something on, but and, and you don't want to extrapolate that table out, but I think that table shows that we started with maybe 20 million of float, and that we're up to something close to 3 billion of float, and that that float has come to us at a cost that's extremely attractive on average over the years. And just to pick an example, last year, when we actually had an underwriting profit, uh, the value of that float was uh, something over $200 million. And that figure was a lot bigger than it was 10 years ago or 20 years ago. So that's a, that is a stream. Uh, last year was unusually favorable, but that, that is a, that's a very significant stream of earnings. And it's one we feel we have reasonably good prospects in. So we feel very good about the insurance business. Okay, zone five. Yeah, my name is Cy <clears throat> Rademacher from Omaha. Is there any point at which your stock would rise to the point where you might split the stock? Hmm. Surprise, surprise. <laughs> I think I'll let Charlie answer that this year. <laughs> He's so popular with the shareholders that I can afford to let him take the tough questions. <laughs> I think the answer is no. <laughs> I think the idea of carving ownerships in an enterprise into little tiny $20 pieces is almost insane. I mean, it's quite inefficient to service a $20 account, and, and uh, I don't see why there shouldn't be a minimum as a condition of, of joining some enterprise. Certainly, we'd all feel that way in a private enterprise. Yeah, we would not carve it up to $20 units. We find it very, it's interesting because every, every company finds a way to fill up its, uh, its, its common shareholder list. And you can, you can start with the A's and work through the Z's. And you know, every company in the New York Stock Exchange, one way or another, has attracted some constituency of, of shareholders. And frankly, we can't imagine a better constituency than, than is in this room. I mean, we, uh, we, have, we, we don't think we can improve on this group. And, and we followed certain policies that we think attracted certain certain types of shareholders and actually pushed away others and and that is part of uh, part of our eugenics program here at uh, Berkshire <laughs> yeah just look around this room and as you mingle with one another this is a very outstanding group of people and uh, why would anybody want a different kind of a group yeah if we cause if, if we if we follow some policies that cause a whole bunch of people 
to buy Berkshire for the wrong reason. The only way they can buy it is to replace somebody in this room or, or in this larger metaphorical room of shareholders that we have. So someone in, the, someone in one of these seats gets up and somebody else walks in. The question is, do we have a better audience? I don't think so. Uh, so I think that uh, I think Charlie, Charlie said it very well. Zone 6. Mr. Buffett, my name is Rob Naw. I'm from Omaha, Nebraska. My question is, given the recent announcement of Midwest Express and their nonstop jet service between the East and West Coasts, will this cut down on your use of the indefensible? And uh, will you be, use more commercial air travel? This is, a, this is a question planted by Charlie. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think you should know, I take it to the drugstore at the moment, and, and uh, I... Uh, no, I, I, it's just a question when I start sleeping in it, at, uh, at, uh, at the hangar. I, nothing, nothing will cut back on the indefensible. It's being painted right now, but uh, I told them to make it last a long time. Charlie, though, was uh, pointing out the merits of other kinds of transportation last night at the uh, meeting of our managers. He might want to uh, repeat those here. <laughs> well, I just pointed out that the back of the plane arrived uh, at the same time as the front of the plane, invariably. <laughs> He's even more of an authority on buses, incidentally, if anybody has any. <laughs> Zone 7. Mr. Buffett, my name's Alan Maxwell from Omaha. I've got uh, two questions. Uh, what is your next goal in life now that you're the richest man in the country? That's easy. It's to be the oldest man in the country. Oh. <laughs> Secondly, you talk about good management with corporations and that you try and buy companies with good management. Uh, I feel that I have about as much chance of meeting good managers other than yourself uh, as I do bringing Richard Nixon back to life. How do I, have, as an average investor, find out what good management is? Well, I think you judge management by, by, uh, by two yardsticks. One is how well they run the business, and I think you can, you can learn a lot about that by reading about both what they've accomplished and what their competitors have accomplished, and, and seeing how they have allocated capital over time. Uh, you have to have some understanding of the hand they were dealt when they, when they, when they uh, themselves got a chance to play the hand. But if you, if you understand something about the business they're in, and you can't understand it in every business, but, uh, but you can find industries or companies that, that where you can't understand it. Then you, si you simply want to look at, uh, at, at how well they have been doing and in, in, in playing the hand essentially that's been dealt with them. And then the second thing you want to figure out is how well that they, they, they treat their, their owners. And I think you can get a handle on that uh, oftentimes. A lot of times you can't. I mean, it, it, there, 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 there are many, there are many uh, companies that obviously fall in somewhere in that 20th to 80th percentile, and it's a little hard to pick out where they, where they do fall. But I think you can usually figure out, uh, I mean, it is, it is not, not hard to figure out that, say, Bill Gates or Tom Murphy, or Don Keel, or people like that are really outstanding managers. And it's hard to figure out who they're working for. Uh, and I could give you some cases on the other end of the spectrum, too. Uh, 
It's interesting how often uh, the ones that, in my view, are the poor managers also turn out to be the ones that, uh, that uh, really don't think that much about the shareholders, too. It, uh, the two often go hand in hand. But I think reading of reports, reading of competitors' reports, I think you'll get a fix on that in some cases. You don't have to, you know, you don't have to make 100 correct judgments in this business or 50 correct judgments. You only have to make a few. And that's all we try to do. Uh, and generally speaking, the conclusions I've come to about managers have really come about the same way you could make yours. I mean, they've come about by reading reports uh, rather than any intimate personal knowledge uh, uh, or no, uh, knowing them personally at all. Uh, so it, it uh, you know, read the proxy statements, see what, see what they think of, see how they treat themselves versus how they treat the shareholders, and, uh, and look at uh, what they have accomplished considering what the hand was that they were dealt when they, when they, when they took over compared to what is going on in the industry. And I, I, think, I think you can figure it out sometimes. You don't have to figure it out very often. Charlie? Nothing to add. Okay, we're back to uh, zone one. Hi there, my name is Lee. I'm from Palo Alto, California. Uh, in meeting Ajit Jain, I've been uh, very impressed over the years. I think I even met his parents once. They came from India. Uh, please comment on your deepest impressions of his personality and managerial skills and also uh, how you go about exactly keeping somebody with such uh, fine skills within the fold. He, he might go to Walt Disney someday and uh, you know, pull down 200 million. Well, if he gets offered 200 million, <laughs> we may not compete too vigorously at that level. <laughs> We, 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 we basically try to, to, to run a business so that, 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 that we, Charlie and I have two jobs. We, we, we have to identify and, and, uh, and, and, and uh, keep good managers interested after, uh, after we figured out who they are. And that often is a little different here because I would say a majority of our managers are financially independent so that they... They don't go to work because they they uh, they are worried about about putting kids through school or or, uh, or putting food on the table. So they they have to have some reason to go to work aside from that. They, they have to be treated fairly in terms of compensation, but they also have to figure it is better than playing golf every day or whatever it may be. And uh, so that's one of the jobs we have, and and we basically attack that the same way we, we look at at what they do the same way we look at what we do. And, uh, we've got a wonderful group of shareholders. Before I ran this, I had a partnership. I had a great group of partners. And essentially, uh, I like to be left alone to do what I did. I like to be judged on the scorecard at the end of the year rather than on every stroke and, and, uh, and not second-guessed in a way that was inappropriate. Uh, I like to have people who understood the environment in which I was operating. And so the important thing, uh, we do with managers generally is, is, is to find the 400 hitters and then not tell them how to swing, as I put in the report. Second thing we do is allocate capital. And aside from that, we play bridge. That's uh, pretty much what uh, happens at Berkshire. So with uh, any of the managers you might name here, uh, we try to make it interesting and, and, and fun for them to run their business. We try to have a compensation arrangement that's appropriate for the kind of business they're in. We have no company-wide compensation plan. We wouldn't dream of having some compensation expert 
consultant come in and screw it up. Uh, we, uh, we try to, some businesses require a lot of capital that we're in, some require no capital. Some are easy businesses where good profit margins are, 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 are a cinch to come by, but, but we're really paying for the extra beyond that. Some are very tough businesses to make money in. And it, it would be crazy to have some huge, huge uh, framework that we tried to place everybody in that, that uh, where one size would, would, would fit all. Uh, people generally are compensated relating uh, in some manner that relates to how their business does as opposed to, there's no reason to pay anybody based on how Berkshire does because uh, no one has responsibility for Berkshire except for, for uh, Charlie and me. And, uh, and uh, we try to make them responsible for their own units, compensated based on how those units do. We try to understand the businesses they're in, so we know what the difference between a good performance and a bad performance. Uh, it, it, it's, uh, and that's about that's 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 how we uh, how we work with people. We've had terrific luck over the years in uh, in retaining uh, the managers uh, uh, that we wanted to retain, and uh, and it's uh, uh, I think largely it's because particularly they sell us a business that to a great extent. Uh, the next day they're running it just as they were the day before and, and uh, they're having as much fun running their business as I have running uh, Berkshire. Charlie? Well, I've got nothing to add, but I think it's that concept of, of treating the other fellow the way you'd like to be treated if the roles were reversed. Uh, it's so simple when you stop to think about it, but it's a rare evening when Ajit and Warren are talking once on the phone. It's, it's more than a business relationship. At least, it seems that way to me. Yeah, well, it is. Stay that way, too. I and, mean, uh, and by the way, we like our businesses, our relationships to be more than a business relationship. Charlie and I are very far. We, we basically, it's, it, it's, it's a luxury, but it's a luxury that, that we, should, uh, we should try to nurture. We get to work with people we like and uh, it makes life a lot simpler. It probably helps on that goal of being the oldest living American, too. <laughs> yeah, and we tend to like people we admire. Yeah, who do we like that we don't admire, Charlie? <laughs> Start naming names. <laughs> do these people have names? <laughs> Zone two. My name is Peter Bevelin from Sweden. Uh, how do you perceive uh, Guinness long-term economics uh, growth-wise? The, the Fitz, is that you? Would you repeat that, Fitz? Was it what what firm growth-wise? Guinness. Oh, Guinness. Yeah, I'm, I'm not as much of an expert on Guinness's products as Charlie is. But, uh, <laughs> we proved that. <laughs> You didn't hear me. He said, he said I proved that. <laughs> I made the decision to buy Guinness, and Guinness is uh, down somewhat from. Oh, actually, the, the, the price in pounds is about the same, but the, the pound is at about a dollar forty-six or seven against an average of dollar eighty something. So uh, we've had a significant exchange loss on that. Uh, the uh, Guinness is, despite the name, the, the, you know, the main product, of course, is Scotch, and. Uh, that's where most of the money is made. Oh, they make good money in, 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 in brewing, uh, but uh, distilling is the, uh, uh, the main business. And, you know, the usage of scotch, particularly uh, 
in this country, uh, uh, the, the trends have not been strong at all. But that was true when we bought it too. There's some countries around the world where it's where it's grown, and there's there's certain countries where it's a, a huge prestige item. I mean, in certain parts of the Far East, the, the, the more you pay for scotch, the, uh, the better you think people uh, think of you. Uh, which I don't understand completely, but I hope it continues. Uh, but but the scotch, worldwide scotch consumption uh, has not uh, has not been anything to write home about. Uh, Guinness makes a lot of money uh, in the business, uh, but I would not. I don't see anything in the, in published history that would lead you to believe that the, the growth prospects in terms of physical volume are high for scotch. The uh, Guinness itself, the beer actually has shown pretty good growth rates in, in some countries, actually from a very tiny base in the U.S. as well. But uh, they will have to do well in, uh, in uh, distilling or, I mean, that, that, that will govern the outcome of Guinness. I think Guinness is well run uh, and uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a very important company in that business, but I wouldn't count on a lot of physical growth. Charlie, what, uh, any consumer insights? Or? No. <laughs> Zone three? Mr. Buffett, my name is Arthur Collius from Canton, Massachusetts. And I'd like to know how you respond to the question that my associates asked me when they say that Berkshire Hathaway has been a good investment up to now. God forbid something happens to Mr. Warren Buffett. Well, I'm glad you didn't say Charlie Munger. I mean. <laughs> <laughs> now there, Berkshire will uh, Berkshire will do uh, will do just fine. We've got a, we've got a wonderful group of businesses. I've told you the two things I do in life, uh, and uh, uh, in terms of the, the managers we have, you'd have to come in and really want to mess it up. Uh, uh, I would think and. We don't have anybody like that in terms of uh, uh, succession plans at, at Berkshire. And then there's the question of allocation of capital. And uh, uh, you could do worse than just adding it to some of the positions that, that we already had. The ownership, is, if, I, if I die tonight, the ownership structure does not, does not change. So you, you've, got, uh, you've got the same large block of stock that has every interest in, in having uh, good successor management. Uh, as, as I would, I mean, there's no, there's no, there would be no greater interest, and uh, it is not, it's not a complicated business. I mean, you ought to worry more about if you own Microsoft about Bill Gates, I think, or something of the sort. But this, this place is, uh, you know, we've got a group down here that are that are running these. You didn't see me out at Porsche. I'm selling any jewelry the other day. I mean, that's 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 somebody else's job. So I, it is not. It's not very complicated. I, incidentally, I, I, I think I'm in pretty good health. I mean, this stuff will do wonders for you if you just try it. it uh, <laughs> Charlie, do you want to add anything? As the uh, yeah, I think the prospects of Berkshire would be diminished, obviously diminished, if Warren were to drop off tomorrow morning. But it would still be one hell of a company, and I think it would still do quite well. I. Uh, I used to do legal work when I was young for Charlie Scurris, and I heard him once say, my business, which was movie theaters like this one, 
was off 25% last year, and last year was off 25% from the year before, and that was off 25% from the year before. And then he pounded the table and he'd say, but it's still von hell of a business. It's not a formula we want to test it. No, no. <laughs> it is one hell of a business that we've got here. I mean, it, uh, and uh, if, if you saw what happened at Berkshire headquarters, you would not worry as much. It, uh, there's very little going on there that uh, contributes to things. <laughs> We're right now at our peak of activity. This is it. <laughs> Zone four. I, first of all, uh, my name is Al Martin, and my wife, uh, Terry, is here with me, and I appreciate uh, the invitation to attend this meeting. Uh, I was a little bit uh, uh, dubious and uh, quite excited at that game uh, Saturday night. I didn't know which side was going to throw the game to the other one, but I did find out at the end. Uh, the first question uh, actually was somewhat answered, uh, but not fully. Uh, has the board... Uh, considered a reverse uh, split. <clears throat> uh, my experience has been that... Uh, would you like to make that a motion? Uh, there was a motion for a <laughs> reverse split. <laughs> uh, I would say a two for one because if it were three or four for one I might end up with no shares yeah. or fractional shares. <laughs> uh, but anyway, my experience has been that all of the stocks that have split uh, have gone down in the next two or three months or the next two or three years including one which you are drinking which is a flat coke. Uh, also, I have observed uh, Merck over the last uh, several years to be hitting a, a low, which uh, split three for one. Uh, so I, I think that, you know, the, the reasons for splitting stocks are to make it affordable. I found that uh, every stock I ever bought was never affordable. I found the reason I bought it was because I, I couldn't afford not to buy it. So that's a different philosophy. I guess that's somewhat shared indirectly with the uh, boards uh, running the stock. Uh, the second question, which is, uh, has to do with... Uh, I hope it's as easy as the first question. <laughs> <laughs> well, I didn't want to uh, wait for an answer to the first question for that reason, because it could be complicated and confusing and so forth. The second question has to do with, uh, could the board consider looking into a commodity broker or a lawyer or both that could uh, take action... Uh, similar to Hillary, uh, Hillary Clinton's. I think, uh, you know, uh, making your net worth go up by a factor of five overnight uh, is more than enticing. Uh, some of us might even want to wait for 10 months to uh, get a 101 return on the money. Uh, well, I want to say, I five, 530% in one day. It, it, uh, Charlie has never done that for us. I mean, <laughs> it, it, it um, really caused me to reassess succession plans at uh, <laughs> Berkshire. And Hillary may be free in a few years. <laughs> I hope you're applauding over her coming to Berkshire, not being free, but I'll, I'll leave that up there. Okay, that was their second question. Huh? That was my second question. Of course, in my experience, it's been that uh, uh, most of us have thought through this situation, and, uh, and I guess it's uh, uh, pretty speculative, but uh, I found out that the rules and laws that are uh, made for trading uh, are interpreted rather than enforced, and I think that applied to this uh, particular case. So let's go on to the third question. All right. <laughs> They're getting easier. <laughs> this, this one is real easy. 
Uh, my wife was a collector of blue chip stamps for many, many years, and she bought some uh, stamps with her. What should she do with them? Well, I, that, that, we can give you a definitive answer to that. Charlie and I entered this trading stamp business to apply our wizardry to it in, what, 1969 or so, Charlie? Yes. We, we were doing what then, about $110 million? No, it, it went up to 120. Okay, and then, and then we arrived on the scene, and we're going to do, what, about 400,000 this year? Yes. Yeah. At the, uh, that shows you what can be done when your management gets active. Uh, we, we, we have presided over a decline of 99 and a half percent. Yeah. Uh, but we're waiting for a bounce. At, uh, and <laughs> I would say this. The, the, the trading stamp business, as those of you who have followed it all, know it only works because of the, of the float. I mean, they're... they're uh, a very, very high percentage of the stamps in the 60s were cashed in. We have some years that we've gotten up to 99%, I believe, we sampled the, uh, the returns because they were given out in such quantity. Uh, but our advice to, uh, to anyone who has stamps uh, is to save them because they're going to be collector's items. And besides, if you bring them to us, we have to give you merchandise for them. So uh, tell, her to tell her to keep them. They'll do nothing but gain in value over years. <laughs> going back into another year to point on the split, I think most people think that the stock would sell for, for more money split. A, we, we wouldn't necessarily think that was advisable in the first place, but we, in the second place, we don't think it would necessarily be true over a period of time. We think our stock is more likely to be rationally priced uh, over time following the present policies than if we were to split it in some major way. And, and we don't think the average price would necessarily be higher. We think that the Volatility would probably be somewhat greater, uh, and we see no way that volatility helps our shareholders uh, as a group. Zone five. I am Peg Gallagher from Omaha. Mr. Buffett, are you interested in influencing Mr. Greenspan at the Fed to stop raising interest rates? Well, I, I wouldn't have any influence with him. Uh, he, he was on the board of Cap City some years ago, and I know him a bit, but but uh, I don't think anyone would have any influence uh, with Mr. Greenspan on that point. But I, I generally think that his, his actions have, have been uh, quite sound during his period uh, as, as Fed chief. I mean, it's part of the job of the Fed, as, as uh, Mr. Martin said many years ago, is to take away the punch bowl at the party occasionally. And uh, uh, that's a very difficult, uh, difficult uh, uh, policy to quantify working with markets day by day. And of course, it's always been the, the job of the Fed basically to lean against the wind, which of course means if the wind changes, you fall flat on your face, but that's another question. But the, uh, I, I, don't, I, I think what, what he has done has probably been somewhat appropriate. I think he's probably been surprised a little bit as to what has happened with, with long-term rates as he's nudged up short-term rates. I think he was hoping that, uh, this is just a guess on my part, that the that, that action sort of early in the cycle on the short-term rate front would, uh, would might make people feel more confident about the, the longer-term uh, rates and uh, therefore that the yield curve would flatten some. I don't know that. Uh, and he may have been a little surprised on that. But it's not an easy job he had, so I, I would not, not second-guess him myself. Charlie, how do you feel about him? Fine. <laughs> Greenspan is safe. <laughs> Zone six. Mr. Buffett.
it. I'm Lee Miller from St. Louis. Uh, there was an article in the April 18th Burns that uh, attempted to calculate the value behind each Berkshire Hathaway share. I'm sure you have some views on that, and I'd be very interested in your uh, perspective on that issue. Yeah, the, uh, there was an article about a week or so ago in, in Barron's. The same fellow wrote an article about four years ago, reaching pretty much the same conclusion, and I, I hope he hasn't been short in between, but the, uh, it, I would say this, it's not, it is not the way I would calculate the intrinsic value of Berkshire, but, but everyone in, in securities markets makes choices on that. Every day somebody sells a few shares of Berkshire and someone sell, buys and, uh, you know, they are probably coming to differing opinions about, about valuation. I, I, I would say that I found it strange that, 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 the, that, that uh, apparently he, he forgot we were in the insurance business, but that, that's not total. It, it really doesn't make any difference. I mean, what, what, we don't pay any attention to what, what people say about Coca-Cola stock or Gillette stock or any of those things. I mean, on any given day, two million shares of Coca-Cola may trade. That's a lot of people selling, a lot of people buying it. If you talk to one person, you'd hear one thing and talk to another. It really, you really should not make decisions in securities based on what other people think. If you're, if you're doing that, uh, you, should, you should think about doing something else because it, it, a public opinion poll will, just, it will not get you rich in Wall Street. Uh, uh, so you really want to stick with businesses that you feel you can somehow evaluate, evaluate yourself. And uh, I don't think, I mean, Charlie and I, we don't read anything about what business is going, the economy is going to do, or the market's going to do, or what anybody. Anytime I see some article that says, you know, these analysts say this or that about some business, it just it doesn't mean anything to us. But, uh, you cannot, you cannot get uh, rich with a weather vane. Uh, zone seven. I'm Edward Barr from Lexington, Kentucky, and I'd like to ask. Given the amount of capital in the banking industry, do you think that more banks should be buying back significant amounts of their stock, like SunTrust, versus just the token amounts that they're buying back or just the authorized amounts? And then also, related question in banking, are, they, are banks too focused on goodwill amortization when declining to buy other banks for cash, thereby using purchase accounting, versus the normal practice in the industry of pooling accounting, even when the stock that they issue may be depressed or undervalued? Well, the first question about the capital in the industry, that you really have to look at that on a bank-by-bank -bank basis, and there is a lot more repurchasing of shares by, by banks taking place. You mentioned SunTrust, but National City is, they bought it back, I think, 5% of their, National City of Cleveland bought back 5% of their stock in the first quarter. There's, there's, a, there's much more repurchasing going on and, and that's simply a judgment call by by management that as to the level of capital they need going forward and what level of capital enables them to earn the return on equity that, that uh, they think appropriate and whether they what they feel like paying for their own shares so I, I think you have to look at that on case by case we certainly like it if we were to own a bank we would uh, or own, own own shares in a bank we would like the idea of the bank repurchasing its stock at a price that we thought was attractive. We would think that they probably knew more about their own bank than some other bank they were going to buy, and that, uh, that uh, if the numbers are right, it's an attractive way to use capital. Your second question about goodwill amortization, 
uh, and purchase accounting versus pooling, we, we, we care not. At, at, at Berkshire, it absolutely makes no difference to us what accounting treatment we get on something. We, we are interested in the economics of a transaction. Some banks, some, some businesses generally, most businesses perhaps, prefer pooling because they don't like to take a goodwill amortization charge. We, we think our shareholders are smart enough, particularly if we make it clear to them uh, the accounting consequences, we think they're smart enough to look through to the economic reality of, 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 uh, of uh, what Berkshire's businesses are all about. Uh, and I think that <clears throat> I think of some managements sell short their own ownership group by by doing various kinds of financial acrobatics in order to have the charges come in a certain way rather than, as you point out, often they might be better off buying for cash rather than their own stock as currency, but they may prefer to use their own stock because they avoid goodwill charges. We've written a few things on goodwill in the past and past annual reports that might get to that subject. We don't care what accounting. We, we sort of rewrite the accounting for any business that we're, we're looking at because in our, in our heads we want to have, in effect, a standardized way of looking at, at businesses. And if one company goes through pooling transactions and another goes through purchase transactions, we're going to recast them in our own minds so that there's comparability. Well, yeah. yeah, the the published accounting results are in accordance with standard convention, and they're a place to start economic analysis. Uh, the figures are frequently quite silly on a functional basis. I'm not criticizing accounting conventions except for some. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but uh, uh, I think it's just a place to start thinking about economic reality. And, uh, by their nature, they can't tie perfectly. They can't even tie very well to economic reality. We, um, we regard it as a negative when we find a management that's preoccupied with accounting considerations, but we find it so frequent that we can't, we can't afford to use it as a, as a total exclusionary factor. It, it, it really surprises me how many managements uh, focus on accounting and, and uh, uh, the time they spend on it. The, uh, it, it it's really unproductive. It, uh, if you find a management that doesn't care about the accounting but does explain to you in clear terms what's going on, I think you should regard that as a plus in owning a security. Zone one. Mr. Buffett, my name is Bill Ackman, I'm from New York City, and my question relates to the appeal of Solomon Brothers as an investment. Um, you talked earlier about uh, leverage and the dangers of leverage. Solomon is a business which is levered 30 to 1, which has very narrow margins and earns a relatively modest return on equity in light of the amount of leverage that they use. What is the appeal of the business um, to you? We have here today the uh, chief executive of Solomon Inc., the parent company, and, and also the chief executive of Solomon Brothers, the investment banking uh, arm. And uh, uh, I would say one of the things we, Charlie and I, feel extraordinarily good about are, are the, uh, the two fellows that are running that operation. We, they they, they uh, did an exceptional job under extraordinarily difficult circumstances, as did John McFarlane, who's also here today. The, the, the three of them 
I mentioned four people in the annual report, and uh, Solomon wouldn't be here today uh, without uh, those three, and, the, and it wouldn't be the company in the future that it's going to be without them. And they, they, they did an absolutely fabulous job. It's the sort of business that, as you point out, uses a lot of leverage. It doesn't, in one way, it doesn't use as much as it looks like, and in another way, it uses even more than it looks like. Uh, uh, but it, uh, the test will be, A, whether they uh, control that business in a way that that leverage does not prove uh, dangerous, and secondly, what kind of returns on equity they, they earn uh, while using it. You certainly should expect to earn somewhat higher returns on equity when you are necessarily exposed to a small amount of systemic risk and, 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 and significant amounts of borrowed money than you would in, in, in a business that's, a, that's an extremely plain vanilla business. But uh, I don't know whether you've met uh, uh, Bob and Derek, but uh, uh, I think you'd feel better about having leverage in their hands than about any other hands you can imagine. Charlie? Why don't we have those three gentlemen stand up? Yeah, you ought to give they them really a hand. They really have done a job yeah. for uh, Berkshire in this yeah. last year. I'll leave the applause for them. <laughs> <laughs> where, where are they? There they are. I've mentioned this before, but I, I, it's worth mentioning again. Derek took on the job of being the operating head of Solomon Brothers on on uh, what, August 18th, 1991. Uh, he didn't know what, he couldn't know what he was getting into exactly. Uh, he, uh, two months later or three months later, we never had a conversation about compensation. He did not ask me for Berkshire or my guarantee of, for indemnification because he's walking into unknown legal problems. We didn't know what the, we would finally uncover. And he worked, uh, uh, incredible hours to keep that place together, which was not easy. Bob Denham, I called, uh, I guess, on the 23rd or so, 20th, called him on a Friday, I got home on a Saturday, the 24th of August. He was living a nice, pleasant, peaceful life in uh, California and uh, had a first-class law firm, good group of clients wife uh, had a good job there and uh, I told him I was in a mess and there wasn't any second choice and three days later he was back in New York and living in a small apartment in Battery City and and, uh, and handling the general counsel's job at, uh, at, at Solomon. They found John McFarlane on that Sunday uh, on the 18th, I think he was running in a triathlon or something. Not a practice that Charlie and I follow but... Uh, <laughs> They, and he was yanked from that and came down, and I think John lives over in New Jersey, but he holed up in the downtown athletic club, and it was his job to keep funding what was then a $150 billion balance sheet uh, during a period when people right and left were canceling us, not because we weren't a good credit, but because they just didn't want to have anything to do with us for a while. And uh, the World Bank and the State of Texas Pension Fund and CalPER, all these people were were shutting off funding at a time, and, 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 and funding in a business, as gentleman just indicated, is the lifeblood of, a, of an enterprise like uh, Solomon. And uh, so those three uh, 
deserve an enormous uh, hand, by, really by the Solomon shareholders, but by this group in turn, because we have an important investment in it. So I thank them publicly. <laughs> Zone two. Kelly Ranson from San Antonio, Texas, and I wondered if uh, you could comment on the mutual savings and loan. Uh, there was just a footnote that the uh, deposits had been assumed by a federal savings bank. And uh, also, uh, what about the uh, annual report for Wesco Financial that I know it used to be in the annual report for Berkshire. Uh, just wondered if you could comment on that, please. The question is about... we. we our 80% owned subsidiary, Wesco Financial, sold its uh, ownership in mutual savings and loan of Pasadena last year. I'll, and uh, I'll let Charlie comment on that. And, and then the second question is about the Wesco report, which is available to any Berkshire shareholder simply by writing Wesco. But we, we found that the stapling problems and other things made it a little difficult to, to keep adding that every year to the report. So now we just we, we make it available to anyone who would Berkshire would like to have it. But Charlie, you want to comment on the sale of mutual? Uh, yes, uh, the savings and loan business uh, became very much more heavily regulated after the huge nationwide uh, collection of scandal and insolvency and so on. And uh, meanwhile, we had a very small savings and loan association. And uh, the combination of the new regulation and, and the fact that it was a very small part of our operation uh, made us decide that we were better off without it. That does happen from time to time in Berkshire. We, we do exit once in a while. And by the way, uh, we would reserve the right to change our mind. I always liked Lord Keynes when he said that <laughs> got new facts or new insights, well, he changed his mind, and then he'd say, what do you do? So, so we changed our mind. They, started, they asked our directors at Mutual to start going to school on Saturday, didn't they, Charlie? <laughs> I think that helped change our mind about <laughs> Mutual. Yeah, it, uh, there's a time to vote with your feet. And even your wallet. <laughs> Zone three. Chicago. Can you speak to some of the economic characteristics of the shoe industry uh, that allowed the business to be profitable and, in your view, attractive? I didn't hear that. Did you hear that, John? He wanted you to comment on the uh, merits of the shoe industry. Well, I think uh, our feelings for the shoe industry are very clear from what's been happening the last few years. We think it's a great business to be in as long as you're in with Frank Rooney and Jim Isler and Peter Lunder and Harold Alfond. Otherwise, it hasn't been too good. The, uh, we, uh, we have a couple of extraordinary uh, shoe operations, and, but they're not extraordinary because we get our leather from different steers or uh, anything of the sort. It's, uh, we have two companies, uh, really three now, that. Lowell's been brought in too, but that have truly extraordinary records. I think those same managements 
would have been enormous successes in, 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 in any business they've gone into, but they have gone into the, they are in the shoe business, and the companies uh, earn ex, ex, unusual returns on equity, they earn unusual returns on sales, they've got terrific trade reputations, uh, and I think that to the extent we can find ways to expand in the shoe business while employing those managements, uh, we'll be very excited about doing so. Uh, it isn't because we think that the shoe industry is any cinch, you know, per se or anything of the sort, but, uh, but we've got a lot of talent uh, employed in the shoe business, and whenever we've got talent, we like to try and figure out a way to give them as big a domain as we can. And uh, it's not inconceivable that we would expand the shoe business uh, perhaps even significantly over time. My name is Stuart Hartman from Sioux City. After the brevity of the last question from Section 4, I'll try to be extremely brief. Um, the, uh, given the scrutiny that the tobacco business is going under right now, number one, what do you see as the business prospects for those huge cash cows? And at any point, would, uh, would that be attractive to you given their liability? Questions about the, the future of the tobacco business? I don't. I probably know no more about that than you do because it's uh, it's uh, it's fraught with with uh, uh, questions that relate to societal attitudes, and and you can form an opinion on that just as well as I could. But I would I would not like to have a significant percentage of my net worth in the tobacco business myself. But uh, uh, they may have better futures than than I envision. I, 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 I don't really think that I have special insights on that. Uh, Charlie, you? No. It's a, you, you have to come to a conclusion as to how, how society is going to want to treat, and, and the present administration for that matter. And, and uh, uh, it, the economics of the business may be fine, uh, but that doesn't mean it has a great future. Zone 5. I'm Harriet Morton from Seattle, Washington. I'm wondering when you are considering an acquisition, how you look at the usefulness of the product. In, in looking at any business? Uh, yes. Yeah. Well, I, obviously, we, we look at what the market says is the utility. And the market the market has voted very heavily for Dexter Shoe, just to be an, exam, uh, an example. I, uh, I don't know how many, how many pairs of shoes they were turning out back in 1958 or thereabouts, but, but uh, year after year, people have essentially voted for the, the utility of, of that product. Uh, uh, there are 750 million or so eight-ounce servings of one product or another from the Coca-Cola company consumed uh, every day around the world, and uh, there are those of us who think the utility is very high. I can't make it through the day without a few. Uh, but there are other people that might rate it differently. But essentially, people are going to get thirsty. And, and uh, if this is the way they take care of their thirst better than, uh, and they prefer that to other forms, then I, I would rate the utility high of the product. But I think it's hard to argue with, with the market uh, on that. I mean, people, some people may think that uh, you know, listening to a rock concert is not something of high utility. Other people may think it's terrific. And so uh, we would judge that. I don't think we would come to an independent decision 
that uh, there was some great utility uh, residing in some product that had been available to the public for a long time, but, but the public had not uh, endorsed in any way. Charlie? Well, I think that's right, but I'd say averaged out we're in a, a bunch of high utility products. I mean, nurses' shoes, work shoes, casual shoes. We don't have a lot of, what, Italian pumps. <laughs> don't, don't rule it out, Charlie. We may be here next year defending yeah, right. it. <laughs> well, <laughs> no, I just say if you, if, you, if you judge the existing portfolio as indicating what the future is likely to be like. Right? Well, certainly a lot of essentials were sold out of Borsheim's yesterday. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I hear my family clapping. <laughs> Zone six. We have no question up here. Okay, six. zone seven. Good morning, Mr. Birch morning. or uh, Buffett. <laughs> <laughs> I have, a niece, Chris, I have a niece here who's, who has a, a son named Berkshire, so... It, uh, <laughs> uh, I'm Chris Blunk from Omaha. My first question is, in years past, we've had samples of various products. When are we going to have some Guinness? Some, some, some what now? Guinness samples. <laughs> uh, my second question is, in light of the multiple uh, disasters, that have taken, uh, disasters that have taken place in L.A., has that had any impact on the cats for Berkshire? On, on our super cat business? Yeah. The LA earthquake, which is originally, I believe the first estimate of insured damage was a billion five, which struck us as kind of ludicrous, but uh, has now escalated. The last official estimate, the one we use that's a trigger in our policies, I think is either 4.5 billion or 4.8 billion, but it's going to be higher than that. Uh, our losses, are fairly minor. Uh, if it gets to eight billion of insured damage, that would trigger uh, another policy or two. But I would say that the the LA quake, which did considerably more damage, I think, than people would have anticipated from a 6.7 for various reasons having to do with how, how quakes operate. Uh, uh, that quake is not going to turn out to be of any of any real, it's, it's not the kind of, of super cat that a 15 or 20 billion dollar hurricane which hit Florida or Long Island uh, or New England would be. That, that, that's the kind of, we, we could lose or we could pay out six or seven hundred million dollars in sort of a worst case super cat. Now our total premiums this year might be say 250 million or something in that area. So. So one super cat in the wrong place would be, would produce, and, and there could be more than one, uh, could produce, we'll say, a $400 million or thereabouts underwriting loss from that business. The LA Quake is, is peanuts on that scale, but it wouldn't have taken a whole lot more uh, in terms of numbers on the Richter scale if it happened to have an epicenter where it did. 
and be of the type that it was, relatively shallow, that uh, we could have had that sort of thing happen. I think that the insurance industry has vastly underestimated, maybe, maybe not now, maybe not now, but up till a few years ago, the full potential of what a what a super cat could do. Uh, but Hurricane Andrew and, and the LA quake may have been something of a wake-up call. They were far from a worst-case situation. A really big uh, Type 5 hurricane on Long Island uh, would end up leaving a lot of very major insurance companies in significant trouble. Uh, we define our losses. Uh, Essentially, $700 million sounds like a lot of money. It is a lot of money, but, but there are limits on our policies. That is not true of people that are just writing the basic homeowners or, or the business. They, those losses could go off the chart. There were certain companies in the L.A. quake that thought they had a what they call a, a probable maximum loss uh, for California quakes, and it and the LA quake, which was far from the worst case you can imagine, turned out to far exceed those probable maximum losses. So I, I think the, the industry has had and may still have its head in the sand a little bit in terms of what can, what can happen, either in terms of a quake in California or more probably in terms of a hurricane along the East Coast. Um, so far this year, we're, we're in reasonable shape, but that doesn't mean much because by far the, 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 larger, the larger exposure is in hurricanes and, and essentially 50% of the hurricanes hit in September and about, I think it's about 15% would be in August, close to 15% in October. So you have 80% roughly in those three months and then there's a little tail on both sides. But uh, that, that's when you find out whether you've had a good or bad year in the super cat business basically. It's a business we like at the right rates because there are very few people that can afford to, to write it at the level that the underlying company, the, the reinsured companies need it. And uh, uh, we are in a position, if the rates are right, to do significant business. Charlie? Uh, nothing to add. Zone one? Uh, Clayton Riley from Jacksonville, Florida. Um, this is a little different than all the other questions, but what were the three uh, best books you read last year outside of the investment field? Well, one, even one will do. I'll, uh, I'll give you, I'll, 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 I'll tout a book first that I read but that isn't available yet, uh, but it will be in September. Uh, the, uh, the woman who wrote it, I believe, is in the audience, and it's 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 Ben Ben Graham's uh, biography, which will be available in in September by Janet Lowe, and I've read it, and uh, I think those of you who are interested in investments for sure will enjoy it. She's done a good job of capturing Ben. Uh, one of the books I enjoyed a lot was written also by a shareholder who's not here because he's being sworn in, I believe, today or tomorrow, maybe tomorrow, as head of the Voice of America, and uh, that's Jeff Cowan's book. Uh, which is on uh, the people versus Clarence Darrow. It's the it's the uh, it's the story of the Clarence Darrow trial for for uh, essentially a, a jury bribery in in Los Angeles back around 1912 when the McNamara brothers had uh, bombed the L.A. Times. And 
It, it's, a, it's a fascinating book. Jeff uncovered a lot of information that previous uh, biographies of Darrow didn't have. Uh, uh, I think you'd enjoy that. Uh, Charlie, you can... Well, I very much enjoyed Connie Brook, Brooks' uh, biography, uh, Master of the Game, which was a biography of Steve Ross, who uh, headed uh, Warner uh, and uh, later was what, co-chairman of Time Warner. Yeah, a little more than co-chairman. Yeah, and uh, <laughs> she's a very insightful writer, and it's a very interesting story. I am rereading a book I really like, which is Van Dorn's biography of Benjamin Franklin, which came out in 1952, and uh, I'd almost forgotten how good a book it was. And that's available in paperback everywhere. We've never had anybody quite like Franklin in this country. Never again. He believed in compound interest too, incidentally, as you may remember. <laughs> What do you, we set up those two little funds, one in Philadelphia and one in Boston. Right. Yeah, to, to demonstrate the advantages of compound interest. That, I think that's the part Charlie's rereading. <laughs> Zone two. Thank you for teaching me, uh, teaching so much to all of us about business. My name is Mike Asale from New York City. Um, you mentioned earlier that um, Berkshire's shoe business was great, but that other shoe businesses were not so good. Uh, what are the uncertainties of the global brand leaders that the Berkshire seems to like? Um, they like Coke and, and Gillette. Um, the global brand leaders in the shoe business being Nike and Reebok. What are their uncertainties in terms of long-term competitive advantage um, business economics, consumer behavior, and the other risk factors that you mentioned in the annual report this year. Thank you. So you're really asking about the future prospects of Nike and Reebok? Yeah, I, 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 I don't know that much about those businesses. We do have one person in this audience at least who owns a lot of uh, Reebok, but uh, I, 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 I'm not expressing a negative view in any way on that. I just, I don't understand that the, I don't understand their competitive position and the likelihood of permanence of their competitive position over a 10 or 20 year period, as well as I think I understand the, the position of Brown and Dexter. That doesn't mean I think that it's inferior. It doesn't mean that I think that we've got better businesses or anything. I, I think we've got very good businesses, but I, I'm not, I, I, I'm not, uh, I haven't done the work. And I'm not sure if I did the work, I would understand them. I think they are harder to understand, frankly, and to develop a fix on than, than, than our kinds. But they may be easier for other people who just have a better insight into that kind of business. Some businesses are a lot easier to understand than others. And Charlie and I don't like difficult problems. I mean, we, we uh, if something is, is hard to figure, you know, I mean, we, we'd rather multiply by three than by pi. I mean, it's just easier for us. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Charlie, you have Well, that is such an obvious point. And yet so many people think if they just hire somebody with the appropriate la uh, labels, they can do something very difficult. That is one of the most dangerous ideas a human being can have. Uh, 
all kinds of things just intrinsically create problems. The other day I was dealing with a problem and I said, this thing, it's a new building. I said, this thing has three things I've learned to fear. An architect, a contractor, and a hill. And, <laughs> and, and uh, if you go at life like that, I think you at least make fewer mistakes than people who think they can do anything by just hiring somebody with a label. We've come, excuse me, go ahead. You don't have to hire out your thinking if you keep it simple. You don't have to do, we've said this before, but you don't have to do exceptional things to get exceptional results. And some people think that if you jump over a seven foot bar, that the ribbon they pin on you is going to be worth more money than if you step over a one foot bar. And it just isn't true in the investment world at, uh, at all. So it, uh, you can do very ordinary things. I mean, what is complicated about this? But, you know, we're $3 billion pre-tax better off than we were a few years ago because of it. Nothing that I know about that product or its distribution system, its finances, or anything that really hundreds of thousands or millions of people aren't capable of, uh, that they don't already know. They just, just don't do anything about it. And similarly, if... Uh, if you get into some complicated business, you can get a report that's a thousand pages thick and you got PhDs working on it, but it doesn't mean anything. And, uh, you know, what you've got is a report, but you don't, it, you won't understand that business, uh, what, what it's going to look like in 10 or 15 years. The big thing to do is avoid being wrong. But, uh... There's some things that are so intrinsically dangerous. Another of my heroes is Mark Twain, who looked at the promoters of his day, and he, he said, a mine is a hole in the ground owned by a liar. And that's the way I've come to look at projections. I mean, basically, I can remember Warren and I were offered $2 million worth of projections once in the course of buying a business, and the book was this thick. And, for nothing. And, and, and we were given it for nothing, and we wouldn't open it. You know, uh, we'd, we'd almost pay $2 million not to look at it. <laughs> I mean, it it's ridiculous. I, I, I do not understand why any buyer of a business looks at a bunch of projections put together by a seller or... Or, or his agent. Or his agent. I, I mean, it, it, you can almost say that it's... it's uh, it's naive to think that that has any utility whatsoever. We just are not interested. If we don't have some idea ourselves of what we think the future is, to sit there and listen to some other guy who's trying to sell us the business or get a commission on it, tell us what the future is going to be, it, 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 like I say, it, it's very naive. Yeah, and five years out. Yeah. We, uh, we had a line in the report one time, don't ask the barber whether you need a haircut. And, uh, it's quite applicable to projections of uh, by sellers of businesses. Zone three. Uh, Mr. Buffett, uh, Greg Ulrich from Washington, D.C. Uh, in uh, the last uh, year, United Airlines and Northwest have resolved some of their financial problems by uh, uh, moving ownership over to the employees. With U.S. Air's current positions uh, problems, 
What do you see as uh, occurring with U.S. Air? And do you see any uh, movement toward uh, employee ownership? And how will that affect uh, Berkshire's interest in the company? Well, U.S. Air has a cost structure which is non-viable uh, in today's airline business. Now, that in an important way involves its labor costs, but it involves other things too. But it, uh, it certainly involves its labor costs, and they've they've stated this publicly. And uh, uh, I think, uh, and they have uh, they have uh, they are talking. Uh, with their unions about it, and they're talking with other people about other parts of their cost structure. Uh, and I think you'll just see that what, what unfolds in the next uh, relatively few months, because uh, there isn't any question that, uh, that the cost structure is out of line. I think the cost structure could be brought into line, but whether it will be brought into line or not is another, is another question. And you know, the, looking backwards, the answer is not to to get into businesses that need to solve problems like that, it's to, but that was that was a mistake I made, uh, and I think in Seth Schofield, you've got a manager who understands that business extremely well, who probably is as, in my view anyway, is as uh, uh, well regarded and trusted by people who are going to have to make changes as anyone could be in that position, but that may not be enough. I mean, that, that, uh, there's enormous tensions when you need to take hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars out of the cost structure of any business. And when you need cooperative action all, by various groups, each one of which feels that maybe they're having to give a little more than some other group, and understandably feels that way. You know, that is, that is an enormously tough negotiating job. I think Seth is as well equipped for that as anyone, but I would not want to, you know, I cannot predict the, the outcome. Charlie, yeah. Well, if, if I were a union leader, I would give Seth whatever he wants because he's not the kind of a fellow who would ask for more than he needs. And... Uh, perfectly obvious that's the correct decision on the labor side, but whether the obvious will be done or not is in the lap of the gods. That's a lot of people with a lot of different motivations, and it, I mean, those, those are really tough, tough questions. I mean, we, we, Charlie and I have been involved with that sort of thing a few times, and uh, frequently it works out, but it, it, it's, it's, not, it's not preordained. Zone four. My name is Sheldon Zizek from Chicago, Illinois. I have two questions. The first one is uh, concerning uh, Mr. Munger. Uh, we know what Mr. Buffett's uh, retirement plans are. I was wondering what yours, uh, your plans for the future um, concerning Berkshire are. I've always preferred the uh, system of retirement where you can't quite tell from observing from the outside whether the man is working or retired. <laughs> he does it well, too. <laughs> you know, a problem in many businesses, uh, particularly the more bureaucratic ones, 
is that your employees retire, but they don't tell you. And I, I think I can speak for Charlie on this. Charlie, Charlie and I are, are not in any hurry to retire. He's trying to outlast me, actually. <laughs> Thank you. My second question is, um, I was just curious why you sold a portion of uh, Cap Cities. We thought that, uh, we thought it was a good idea for Cap Cities to have a tender offer. They, they had cash that we thought that they could not use in any, they were not likely to be able to use in a better way than repurchasing their own shares because they, they do have some very good businesses. Uh, they and we felt that a tender offer would, would, uh, would not be successful in terms of attracting a number of shares unless Berkshire were tendering. We felt the price was reasonable to tender at. Uh, it turned out that the business was getting stronger during that period and various things were happening in media. So there were only 100,000 shares or so tendered outside of our million. That isn't necessarily what we thought was going to happen going in, but that is what happened. It's acceptable to us, but, uh, but that doesn't mean that it was the desired outcome. We would not have tendered all of our shares or anything of the sort. We wanted to remain a substantial shareholder of, 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 of Cap Cities. We've always, we've, most of the time, we've favored Cap Cities buying in its stock, and it's bought in a fair amount of stock since the ABC merger took place in 19, started in 1986. Zone five. Good morning. My name is Matt Voke. I'm from Omaha. Last year's meeting, you made reference to structured settlements. I was wondering how is that business progressing for you? Uh, the question's about the structured settlement business, which is a business in which uh, Berkshire uh, guarantees, uh, an, in effect, an annuity to some claimant of another, usually of, of another uh, insurance company, uh, who suffered an injury and instead of getting a lump sum now wants to get a stream of payments over many years in the future, sometimes going out 75 years. We have uh, set up a life company to do that business. We formerly did it all through our property casualty companies and uh, we have done some business but it, it, it is, it's not been a big business yet. Uh, and it may never be a big business. It's a perfectly satisfactory business, but it's not an important item at present in the analysis of, uh, of Berkshire's value. Are you getting having a problem with sound out there on this or not? Just, no? Zone six. My name is David Samra. I'm uh, from San Francisco, California. Uh, in your annual report, I noticed uh, you mentioned Wrigley as being a company that has uh, worldwide dominance, somewhat like Coca-Cola and Gillette, and was curious to know if you had looked at the company in any detail, and if so, <clears throat> whether or not, uh, if you decided not to invest, what were the reasons why? Uh, well, we, uh, we wouldn't want to comment on, on, on a company like that because we might or might not be buying it, we might or might not be selling it, and we might or might not buy or sell it in the future. And, since it falls under that narrow definition of things that we don't talk about, I, I, you know, we, we, it's a good illustration of a company that has a high market share worldwide. But, but you can understand the Wrigley Company just as well as I can. I have no insights into, into the Wrigley Company that you wouldn't have, and, and, and I, don't, I wouldn't want to go beyond that in, 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 in 
in giving you our evaluation of the company. Hate to disappoint you on those, but on, on specific securities, we uh, we are not uh, too forthcoming sometimes. Charlie, I'm good at not being forthcoming. <laughs> Zone seven. Mr. Buffett, Kathleen Ambrose from Omaha. I have a question regarding global diversification just in general. What do you look for in a company? And if so, as far as Europe or Latin America, if you'd like to be specific. The question is about, about global diversification. All we want to be in is businesses that we understand, run by people that we like and priced attractively compared to the future prospects. So there is no specific desire to either be in the rest of Europe or the rest of the world or Far East or uh, to avoid it. It, it, it. It's simply a factor that, that uh, it's, it's, not, it's not a big factor. There may be more chances for growth in some countries. Uh, we, 80% of Coca-Cola's earnings, uh, roughly, will come from outside the United States. 80% uh, of Guinness's earnings will come from outside the United States, but they're domiciled outside the United States, whereas Coca-Cola is domiciled here. Certainly, in many cases, uh, there are markets outside the United States that have way better prospects for growth than, uh, than the U.S. market would have, but they probably have some other risks to them that, that, that this market may not have. Uh, but we, you know, we, we like the international prospects, obviously, of a company like Coke. We like the international prospects of a company like Gillette. Gillette earns 70% of its money outside this country. So if you look on a look-through basis, Coke, uh, we might this year get something like $150 million of earnings uh, indirectly for Berkshire's interest from the rest of the world just through Coca-Cola alone. Uh, but we don't make any specific, we don't think in terms of, I like this region, so I want to be there, or something of the sort. It, uh, uh, it, it's, uh, it's, it's something that's specific to the companies we were looking at, and then we'll try to evaluate that. Uh, Coke is expanding in China. Well, it, uh, you know, that, I think, I forget what they showed last year, maybe 38% growth or something like that in cases. Uh, maybe, uh, it's, uh, it's nice to have markets like that that, that are re relatively untapped. Actually, Gillette is expanding in, 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 in China in a big way, and the Chinese don't shave as often, uh, and, and more of them are what they call dry shavers and wet shavers there, which is electric shavers, but, but you know, maybe we could stick something in the Coke that would come. <laughs> maybe a little synergy at Berkshire, finally. <laughs> Uh, who knows? Uh, zone one. Uh, good morning. I'm Marshall Patton from Bandera, Texas. And uh, back to the insurance losses, what is the comparison between natural disasters and such as earthquake and so on and the uh, L.A. riots? Well, I'm not sure what the connection. They, they, you know, they obviously can both lead to to super cats that we insure against. Because if, if there is enough insured damage, it's likely to trigger uh, 
payment under some of our policies. It would take, it would take some really big uh, riot damage to, to get to our levels because normally we don't kick in now until a, an event gets up to at least you know, $5 billion or so of insured damage under a very large majority of our policies. Something like a quake causes a, a, a fair amount of damage that is not insured because to the extent that it's, that it's highways and things of that sort, public uh, buildings, a lot of that is not insured. But you get interesting questions on this. You, you, the, the, uh, usually we insure an event. But what's an event? Uh, if you go back to the riots that occurred after Martin Luther King uh, was shot, you had riots in dozens of cities. Is that one event or is that, is that a multiple number of events? I mean, it just started by different people. And, uh, but maybe, maybe arising from a common cause. Some of those things aren't actually very well defined even after hundreds of years of, of insurance law and, and custom uh, experience of that. And, uh, but I would say that, that rioting is very, very unlikely to get to a level that triggers uh, our policy. The big, the big risks we face are quake and hurricanes, and hurricanes are, are more significant risk than, than quake. They call them typhoons in the, in the Pacific Ocean. But uh, uh, floods, tremendous damage from floods last year, but, but basically there's not a lot of private flood insurance bought, so the insured losses do not get, do not get large. Just watch the Weather Channel. Zone 2. Diane West from Corona Del Mar, California. I know, Mr. Buffett, that you've said that you don't read uh, what other people say about the market or the economy, but do either you or Charlie have an opinion about how you think things are going to go? Are you bullish or bearish? Uh, uh, you may have trouble believing this, but I, I uh, Charlie and I never have an opinion about the market because uh, it wouldn't be any good, and it might interfere with the opinions we have that are good. At, uh, uh, the, if, we're, if we're right about a business, if we think a business is attractive, it would be very foolish for us to not take action on that because we thought something about what the market was going to do or, or, or anything of that sort, because we just don't know. And, and, and to give up something that you do know and that is profitable for something that you don't know and won't know because of that, it just doesn't, it doesn't make any sense to us. And it doesn't really make any difference to us. I mean, I, I, I bought my first stock, I think, in probably April of 1942 when I was 11. And uh, since then, I mean, actually, World War II didn't look so good at that time. I mean, the, the prospects, uh, it really didn't. I mean, we, you know, we were not doing well in the Pacific. And I'm not sure I calculated that into my purchase of my three shares. <laughs> But the, uh, I mean, just think of all the things that have happened since then, you know, atomic weapons and, and uh, uh, major wars and presidents resigning and, and all kinds of things, massive inflation at certain times. To, to give up what you're doing well to, because of guesses about what's going to happen in some macro way just doesn't make any sense to us. But, uh, uh, 
the best thing that can happen from Berkshire's standpoint, we don't wish this on anybody, but is it, and over time, is to have markets that go down a tremendous amount. I mean, we are going to be buyers of things over time. If you're going to be buyers of groceries over time, you like grocery prices to go down. If you're going to be buying cars over time, you like car prices to go down. We buy businesses. We buy pieces of businesses, stocks. And we're going to be much better off if we can buy those things at an attractive price than if, if we can't. So we don't have any fear at all. Uh, I mean, what we fear is, a, is, a, is, a, is an irrational bull market that's sustained for some long period of time. You as shareholders of Berkshire, unless you own, own your shares on borrowed money or are going to sell them in a very short period of time, are better off if, if stocks get cheaper because it means that we can be doing more intelligent things on your behalf than, than would be the case otherwise. Uh, so I, but, we, but we have no idea what, what uh, and we wouldn't care what anybody thought about it. I mean, it, uh, most of all ourselves. I mean, that Charlie, do you have any? No, I think the, if you're agnostic about those macro factors and therefore devote all your time to thinking about the individual businesses and the individual opportunities, it's just, it's, it's a way more efficient way to behave, at least with our particular talents and lacks thereof. If you're right about the businesses, you'll end up doing fine. We, we, don't, we don't know, and we don't think about when something will happen. We think about what will happen. It's, it's fairly, it's not so difficult to figure out what will happen. It's impossible in our view to figure out when it will happen. So we, 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 we focus on what will happen. This company in 1890 or thereabouts, the whole company sold for $2,000. Got a market value now of about 50-odd billion. Somebody could have said to the fellow who was buying this in 1890, you know, you're going to, you're going to have a couple of great world wars, and, you know, and you'll, have the, you'll have the panic of 1907. All these things will happen. Wouldn't it be a better idea to wait? You know? <laughs> yeah. we, can, we can't afford that mistake, basically. Yeah. Zone three? I'm Tim Medley from Jackson, Mississippi. Last year, the question was asked about your preference for purchasing entire businesses versus parts of public companies. Uh, you mentioned you preferred to buy private businesses uh, because of the tax advantages and your attraction to the people in those businesses. Are you finding today that there are better purchases within the private market uh, versus uh, in the public securities market? Well, I would answer that no. Uh, we, we, we very seldom find something to buy on a negotiated basis for an, an entire business. It, it, we have certain size requirements, big limiting factors, it has to be something we can understand. I mean, that eliminates 95% of the businesses and, and, uh, and we get, we got, we don't pay any attention to them, but we get lots of proposals for things that are just totally outside the boundaries of what we've already said we're interested in. We prefer to buy entire businesses or 80% or greater interest in businesses, partly for the tax reasons you mentioned, and frankly, we, we, we like it better. We just, it's, it's the kind of business we would like to build if we had our absolute druthers on it. Counter to that is we can usually get more for our money in, in, in wonderful businesses in terms of buying little pieces of them in the market, because the market is far more inefficient 
in pricing businesses than is, is uh, the negotiated market. You're not going to buy any bargains. And I mean, you, you shouldn't you shouldn't even approach the idea of of of, uh, of buying a bargain in a negotiated purchase. And, you want to buy it from people who are going to run it for you. They want to buy it from people who are intelligent enough to, to uh, price their business properly, and they are. I mean, that's the way things are. The market does not do that. The market, in the stock market, you get a chance to buy businesses at foolish prices. And that is why we end up with a lot of money in marketable securities. If we absolutely had our choice, we would own a, a group of, we would own three times the number of businesses we own uh, outright. We're unlikely to get that opportunity over time, but periodically we'll get the chance to find something that, that fits our tests. And in between, we will, when the market offers the right prices, we will buy more, either businesses we already own pieces of, or we'll buy one or two new ones. Uh, something's usually going on. Uh, there are tax advantages to owning all of them, but that's more than offset by the fact that uh, You'll never get a chance to buy the you'll never get a chance to buy the whole Coca-Cola company or the whole Gillette company. The businesses like that, the sensational businesses, are just not available. Sometimes you get a chance to make a sensible purchase in the market of such businesses. Charlie. Well, I think that's exactly right. If you stop to think about it, if a hundred percent of a business is for sale, you've got the average corporate buyer is being run by people who are who have the mindset of, of people buying with somebody else's money, and we have the mindset of people buying with our own money. And uh, there's also a class of buyers for 100% of businesses who are uh, basically able and shrewd financial promoters. I'm talking about the uh, uh, leveraged buyout funds and so on. And, uh, and those people tend to have the upside but not the downside in the private arrangements they've made with their investors. And naturally, they tend to be somewhat optimistic. And uh, so we have formidable competition when we try and buy 100% of businesses. Most managers are better off in terms of their personal equation if they're running something larger. Now, they're also better off if they're running something larger and more profitable. But the first condition alone will usually leave them better off. We're only better off if we're running something that's more profitable. We also like it if it's more larger, if it's larger too. But, but our equation actually, our personal equation is actually different than, than a great many managers in that respect. Uh, even if that didn't operate, I think most managers psychically would enjoy running running something larger. And if you can pay for it with other people's money, I mean that gets pretty attractive. Uh, you know. How, how much would, uh, would and let's just say you're a baseball fan, well, how much would you pay to own whatever your hometown, the Yankees? Uh, you might pay more if you were writing a check on someone else's bank account than if you were writing it on your own. It's been known to happen. And, and in corporate America, it, uh, animal spirits are there, and those are our competitors on buying entire businesses. In terms of buying securities, uh, most managers don't even think about it. It's very interesting to me because they'll say that they'll have somebody else manage their money in terms of a portfolio of securities. Well, all that is is a portfolio of businesses. And I'll say, well, why don't you pick out your own portfolio? They'll say, that's much too difficult. 
and then some guy will come along with some business that they never heard of a week before and, and give them some figures and a few projections and the guy thinks he knows enough to buy that business. It, it's very puzzling to me sometimes. Zone four. Could you hold a little closer to you? I can't, can't hear it too well. It's hard to hear. I'm not, is the mic on there? It's on. Oh, okay. I can hear that fine. Let's try it one more time. Oh. Uh, Dan Rader, Got it. San, San Mateo, California. Uh, this is a question for Mr. Munger. Uh, in your most recent letter to shareholders in Wesco's annual report, you calculated the intrinsic value of Wesco at about $100 per share and compared that to the then current market price of Wesco of about $130 per share. In the same letter, you stated that it was unclear whether at then current market prices, Berkshire or Wesco presented a better value to prospective purchasers. In light of that, would you compare the intrinsic value of Berkshire to its current market price? Well, the answer to that is uh, no. <laughs> Berkshire has never uh, calculated intrinsic value per share and reported it to the shareholders, and Wesco never did before this year. Uh, we changed our mind at Wesco because we really thought some of the buyers had gone a little crazy and a lot of things were being said to prospective shareholders that, uh, in our opinion, were unwise. And we don't really like attracting, even though we've had nothing to do with it, we don't like attracting people in at, at, at high prices that may not be uh, wise. So we. We departed from our long precedent, and, I, and we did, in the Wesco report, make an estimate of intrinsic value per, per share. But it, we're not changing the general policy. That was just a one-time quirk. Well, and also, I think it's true that the, the Wesco intrinsic value per share can be estimated by anyone. Uh, within a fairly close limits. It, it just isn't that complicated because there aren't a number of businesses there that, that, that uh, have values different than carrying values, or where they are, they're all footnoted in terms of numbers. So it, it, it'd be almost impossible to come up with numbers that are significantly different than the number Charlie put in there. Berkshire has, has, has assets that, number one of which would be the insurance business, that it's clear have very significant excess values, but but some, one, one person might estimate those at maybe three times what somebody else would estimate them at. That's less true of our other businesses, but it's it's still true in in a way so that Berkshire's range would be somewhat greater. And as Charlie, uh, it, we basically we don't want to disappoint people. We also don't want to disappoint ourselves. Uh, but we. We have our own yardsticks for what we think is doable. We try to convey that as well as we can to the people who are partners in the business. And I think that we saw some things being published about, about Wesco that simply would, would, might have led to, probably did lead to some 
some expectations that simply weren't consonant with our our own personal expectations, and that that's that that leaves us uncomfortable. Zone five. Uh, hello, my name is Charles Pyle from Ann Arbor, Michigan. Uh, I'd like to ask you to expound on your view of risk in in the financial world. And I ask that against the background of what appear to be a number of inconsistencies between your view of risk and the conventional view of risk. Uh, I mentioned that in a recent article you pointed out an inconsistency in the use of beta as a measure of risk, which is a common standard. And I mentioned that uh, derivatives are dangerous and yet you feel comfortable playing in derivatives through Solomon Brothers. and. Uh, betting on hurricanes is dangerous and yet you feel comfortable playing with hurricanes through insurance companies. Uh, so it appears that you have some view of risk that's inconsistent with what would appear on the face of it to be the conventional uh, view of risk. Well, we do define risk as the possibility of harm or injury and, and in that respect we think it's, it's, it's it's inextricably wound up in, in, in your time horizon for, for holding an asset. I mean, if, if, if your risk is that you're going, if, if you intend to buy XYZ Corporation at 11.30 this morning and sell it out before the close today, I mean, that is, in our view, that is a, a very risky transaction because we think 50% of the time you're going to suffer some harm or injury. Uh, if you have a time horizon on a business, we think the risk of buying something like Coca-Cola at the price we bought it at a few years ago is essentially is so close to nil uh, in terms of our prospective holding period. But if you ask me the risk of buying Coca-Cola this morning and you're going to sell it tomorrow morning, I say that is a, that's a very risky transaction. Now, as I pointed out in the annual report, it became very fashionable uh, in the academic world, and then that spilled over into the financial markets to define risk in terms of volatility, of which beta became a measure. Uh, but that measure, that, that, is, that is no measure of risk. Does the risk in terms of our in terms of our supercat business is not that we lose money in any given year. We know we're going to lose money in some given day, that is for certain, and, and, and we're extremely likely to lose money in a, in a given year. Our time horizon of writing that business you know, would be at least a decade, and we think the probability of losing money over a decade is low. So we feel that in terms of our horizon of investment, that that is not a risky business, and it's a whole lot less risky than writing something that's much more predictable. Interesting thing is that using conventional measures of risk, something whose return varies from year to year between plus 20% and plus 80% is riskier as defined and something whose return is 5% a year every year. It, uh, we just think the financial world has gone haywire in terms of measures of risk. We. We look at what we do. We are perfectly willing to lose money on a given transaction, arbitrage being an example, uh, any given insurance policy being another example. We are perfectly willing to lose money on any given transaction. We are not willing to enter into transactions in which we think the probability of doing a number of mutually independent events, of a, but of a similar type, 
has an expectancy of loss. And, and uh, we hope that we are entering into our transactions where our calculations of those probabilities have validity. Uh, and to do so, we try to narrow it down. There are a whole bunch of things we just won't do because we don't think we can, we can write the equation on them. Uh, but we basically, Charlie and I, by nature, are, are pretty risk averse, but we are very willing to enter into transactions. We, if, if, if we knew it was an honest coin and someone wanted to uh, give us seven to five or something of the sort on one flip, how much of Berkshire's net worth would we put on that flip? Well, we, we would, it, it would sound like a big number to you. It, it, it would not be a huge percentage of the net worth, but it would, be a, it would be a significant number. We will do things when probabilities favor us. Charlie? Yeah, we, uh, I, I would say we try and think like Fairmath and Pascal as if they'd never heard of modern finance theory. Uh, I really think that a lot of modern finance theory uh, can only be described as disgusting. <laughs> Zone six. Good morning, I'm Paul Miller from Kansas City, Missouri. I've got two questions. Uh, first, not too long ago, I believe it was Fortune Magazine that ran an article regarding personal tax rates. And at the risk of misquoting you, my recollection is that uh, you favored higher personal rates, rates even higher than those proposed by uh, those in Washington. The second question is, I've heard Berkshire Hathaway referred to as nothing more than a high-priced rich man's mutual fund. Uh, would you care to comment on that also? Well, on, on tax rates, I, I, if you ask me what I personally favor, I, I personally favor a steeply progressive consumption tax. That has a little more of a little more attention being paid to it now, uh, although the steeply progressive might, might be modified by most of the advocates of the consumption tax, maybe to mildly progressive or something of the sort. There's a non uh proposal along that line, and there are other people that are talking about it more. It may be examined by the new Kerry uh, Danforth Commission, of which we've got a member uh, in the audience. Uh, but I, I, I believe in, one way or another, I believe in progressive taxes. And uh, 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 so I am not shocked in terms of my own situation, or, and I don't think Charlie is particularly, about having a progressive income tax, although, like I say, I think society would run better over time if it were a, a progressive consumption uh, tax instead. Do you, want, do you want to comment on the tax situation, Jerome? Well, uh, I think there is a point at which income taxes become quite counterproductive if the progression is too high. But uh, I don't think we're there yet. We think at least I think that I'm extraordinarily well treated by the society. I think most people with high incomes are. I think if you transported most of them uh, to Bangladesh or Peru or something, they would find out how much of it is them and how much is the society. And, and I think there's nothing better than a market system in terms of motivating people and in terms of producing the goods and services that the society wants. But I do think it gets a little out of whack uh, uh, in terms of what uh, the productivity may be of an outstanding teacher compared to somebody who is 
good at figuring out the intrinsic value of businesses. I, I don't have a better system on the, on, the, uh, on the income side, but I think society should figure out some way to, uh, uh, to make those who are particularly blessed, in a sense, to have talents that get paid off enormously in a market system to, to give back a fair amount of that to the society that produces that. Uh, the question about Berkshire being a, uh, I think it was, was it Rich Man's Mutual Fund or something like that, we don't look at it that way at all. We look at it as a uh, collection of businesses and ideally we would own all of those businesses. Uh, uh, so it's, it's to the extent that a mutual fund owns stock in a lot of companies and diversifies among businesses and we try to own a lot of businesses ourselves, I guess that's true, but I guess you could say the same thing of General Electric or, 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 or an operation like that. We, we are more prone to buy pieces of businesses than the typical manager, but we are trying to do, in a sense, the same thing Jack Welch is trying to do at General Electric, which is try to own a number of first-class businesses. He gets to put the imprint of his own management, which I think is very good, on those businesses. and. And we are more hands-off both in the businesses we own outright and in the ones we own pieces of. But we're, we're going at it the same way. And, and General Electric has been very successful uh, under Jack's leadership in doing it his way. Uh, we think in terms of what we bring to the game and the problems of putting money to work all the time that, that, that our own system is, you know, will work best for us. Charlie? Yeah, I've got nothing to add to that. Zone one. Hello, I'm Christopher Davis from New York City. I'm interested in, in that many of the holdings of Berkshire are in industries that are perceived as interest rate sensitive industries, including Wells Fargo, Solomon, Freddie Mac, even Geico. And yet, you, you have an admitted sort of ambivalence towards interest rates or changes in interest rates. And it therefore seems that you don't feel that those changes affect the fundamental attractiveness of those businesses. I thought maybe you could share your thoughts on what you see in these businesses that the, the investment community as a whole is ignoring. Well, the value of every business the value of a farm, the value of an apartment house, the value of any economic asset is 100% sensitive to interest rates because all you are doing in investing is transferring some money to somebody now in exchange for what you expect a stream of money to be to come in over a period of time. And the higher interest rates are, the present value is going to be. So every business by its nature, whether it's Coca-Cola or Gillette or Wells Fargo, is in its intrinsic valuation is 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 uh, hundred percent sensitive to interest rates now the question as to whether a Wells Fargo or a Freddie Mac or whatever it may be whether their business gets better or worse uh, internally as opposed to the valuation process because of higher interest rates that 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 is not easy to figure I mean Geico if they write their insurance business at the, same, at the same underwriting ratio, in other words, they have the same loss and expense experience relative to the premiums, 
They benefit by higher interest rates, obviously, over time because they're a float business and the float is worth more uh, to them. Now, externally, getting back to the valuation part, the present value of those earnings also becomes less than, but the present value of coach earnings becomes less uh, in, in a higher interest rate environment. Wells Fargo, it's uh, whether they earn more or less money under any given interest rate scenario is hard to figure. There, there may be one short-term effect and there may be another long-term effect. So I do not have to have a view on interest rates, and I don't have a view on interest rates, to make a decision as to an insurance business or a mortgage guarantor business uh, or a banking business or something of the sort uh, relative to making a judgment about Coker Gillette. Charlie? I've got nothing to add. Zone two? Hello, I'm Benjamin Barron from New York. Um, could you speak about your uh, insurance business a little bit, and especially the retroactive policies you've been writing? We speak about the, the did you say the reinsurance business? Retroactive. Well, I heard the retroactive part, but the first part. The, the reinsurance and the retroactive, and also the market in uh, Bermuda and how you see it of your potential markets? I think the retroactive market is what's called retroactive insurance has been pretty well uh, eliminated by developments in, in, in accounting. At, uh, uh, so I would not expect us to really have any volume in, in, uh, in retroactive type policies. Uh, now when we write workers' comp with a with a uh, with a policyholder dividend, in effect, that's a that's a retroactive policy. But that's that's a relative. That's a that's a small part of uh, of, of Berkshire's business. Did I answer what you were driving at there? Pardon me. Just comment on the development of uh, the, the insurance business in Bermuda. Oh, uh, Bermuda. Bermuda is simply a, a you know a, a new competitor. They're not so new. I mean, there have been companies in Bermuda before, but but in the last 15 months, 18 months, maybe there's been four billion plus raised, and because for tax reasons, uh, maybe other reasons as well, but certainly for tax reasons, uh, that capacity has been concentrated in Bermuda-based, Bermuda-domiciled uh, reinsurers, but. Essentially, there's no great difference between that type of competition and other reinsurers' competition, except for the fact that that capacity is new and the money's just been raised, and so there may be some greater pressure on the managers of those businesses to go out and and write business promptly than on somebody that's been around for 50 years. But it, it uh, it's uh, it's no plus for us anytime new capacity uh, enters any business that that we're in, and and that certainly certainly goes for the reinsurance business. Reinsurance business by its nature will be a business in which uh, some very stupid things are done uh, en masse periodically. I mean, it, it, uh, you can be doing dumb things and not know it in reinsurance uh, and, and then all of a sudden wake up and, and find out the, you know, the money is gone and uh, it's the it's what people have found out, and I used that line in the report a year ago, it's what people have found out that we're speculating on, on bonds with 
with low margins recently that you know you don't find out who's been swimming naked until the tide goes out and uh, <laughs> essentially that's what happens in reinsurance you don't you really don't find out who's been swimming naked until the wind blows and <laughs> zone free opinion, uh, adjust your more cash, more stocks, more bonds because of. How does Berkshire Hathaway feel about times of relative financial insecurity? Do you, um, do you arrange for more cash reserves looking forward to a time when you might be able to buy or do you go along your path? <laughs> I think the question is, do we, do we get, sort of get into asset allocation by, by maintaining given levels of cash depending on some kind of outlook or something of the sort? We, we, don't, even, we don't really think that way at all. We, 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 if, if we have cash, it's because we haven't found any, anything intelligent to do with it that day uh, in the way of buying into the kind of businesses we like. And, and when we can't find anything for a while, the cash piles up. Uh, but that, that's, not, that's not through choice. That's, that's because we're failing at what we are essentially are trying to do, which is to find things to buy. And we make no attempt to guess whether cash is going to be worth more three months from now or six months from now or a year from now. Uh, so it, it is, you will never see, we don't have any meetings of any kind anyway at, at Berkshire, but we would never have an asset allocation meeting. We would, we would, uh, <laughs> we would, we would keep looking. I mean, Charlie's looking, I'm looking. Some of our managers are looking. We're looking for things to buy that meet our tests. And if we, if we showed no cash or short-term securities a year-end, we would love it because it would mean that we'd, uh, we'd found ways to employ the money in, in, in ways that we like. I think I would have to admit that if we have a lot of money around, we are a little dumber than usual. I mean, it, it, it tends to make you careless. At, uh, uh, and I would say that the best purchases are usually made when you have to sell something to raise the money to get them because it, it, it just raises the, the bar a little bit that you jump over in, in, in the mental decisions. But we have, I don't know what we'll show, but um, certainly well over a billion dollars of, of, of cash around. And, and, that's not through choice. That, that is a, uh, that you, can, you can look at that as an index of failure on the part of your management. And, and we will be happy when we can buy businesses or small pieces of businesses that, that use up that money. Zone four. Gentlemen, uh, my name is Richard Surser from Tucson, Arizona. I understand that 40% uh, of all home mortgages have been securitized by Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, the duopoly. I would, uh, at the risk of asking you for a projection, since you talked about projections before, I'd be interested in understanding what you think will happen to that uh, market share over time for this duopoly. Thank you. Yeah, well, I, well the, the answer to that it, it doesn't involve much of a prediction. That, that market share is essentially certain to go up. Uh, that doesn't mean that those are wonderful businesses to buy, but it does. But the market share is essentially certain to go up because the the economics 
uh, that those two entities possess compared to other ways of intermediating money between investors and people who want to borrow. No one else has those economics. So what holds the share of Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae down is the fact that they are only allowed to to loan roughly $200,000 on any mortgage. That's a, that's a, a, a limiting factor. It's probably been a good thing for them that it has been a limiting factor, but the, uh, they are shut out of part of the market. But the market that they are in, they essentially have economics that, uh, that other people can't touch for intermediating money, intermediating money, including the savings and loan business that we were in. We, we, we had a, a business that intermediated money, went out and got it from depositors and lent it to people who wanted to borrow on a home. Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae do it the same way. Uh, they don't do exactly the same way, but they perform the same function. And they did it, they could do it so much more cheaply than we could do it by having branches or anything of the sort and paying, paying the insurance fee we paid. They're going to get the business. They should get the business. And uh, so their market share will grow. Charlie? Well, I think that's right. You're doing great. <laughs> Zone five. <laughs> Good morning. I'm Sarah Pruitt from Milwaukee, Wisconsin. And I wondered if you feel that the speed with which information is available and disseminated today has affected your business buying decision process. And do you believe that speed has caused you to miss opportunities? question about seas expanding? No. Mm -hmm. uh, does the speed of information no. today uh, affect our decision-making process? Now, we, we, I would say that uh, we, we perform about like we were doing 30 or 40 years ago. I mean, we, we, read, we read annual reports. It isn't, the, it isn't the, the speed of information really doesn't make any difference to us. It, it, it's the processing and finally coming to to some judgment that actually has some utility. That is that it's, it, it's a judgment about the price of a, a business or a part of a business of security versus what it's essentially worth. And, and uh, none of that uh, involves anything to do really with, with, uh, with quick information. It, it involves getting good information, but usually that, that, it's not, we're not looking for needles in haystacks or anything of the sort. You know, we like haystacks, not needles, basically. And, 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 and we want it to shout at us. And I would say that, uh, that uh, well, virtually everything we've done has been reading public reports and, and, and then maybe asking questions around to ascertain trade positions or product strengths or something of that sort. Uh, but we never have to, we can make decisions very fast. I mean, we get called on a business or, or we, can, we can make up our mind whether we're interested in two or three minutes. I mean, it, that, that takes no time. We may have to do a little checking on a few things subsequently. Uh, but we don't need to get, uh, I can't think of anything where we, we, where we really need lots of price data or things like that extremely fast to, to make any, any decisions. We've got good management information systems in our operating businesses, but that's that's just another you know that's a question of keeping inventories where they should be and all of that sort of thing. 
I don't think the invest. I, I think you could uh, be in some place where the mails were delayed three weeks, and and the quotations were delayed three weeks, and I think you could do just fine in investing. Zone six. James Pan, New York City. Uh, I have a two-parter question. One, do you think the stock price of Berkshire Hathaway is trading within 15% of its intrinsic value currently? And two, if you think Berkshire Hathaway is undervalued with the amount of cash you have on your balance sheet, would you consider a buyback? Now, the, the answer about a buyback is that, that we generally have felt that market conditions that would make Berkshire attractively priced is probably going to make other things even more attractively priced because we think our shareholders are more rational than the shareholders of many companies. It, it's, it's more likely that we will find some wonderful business at a silly price than we will find Berkshire at a silly price uh, as we go along. So that, uh, that tends to eliminate repurchases, uh, but it doesn't rule them out. It just, but it, it, it explains why the circumstances will not arise very often where repurchases uh, would, would make uh, good sense. In terms of giving you a, a number on intrinsic value, I, I, I don't want to spoil your fun. I mean, you really should work that one out uh, for yourself. Uh, <laughs> Charlie is the expert on intrinsic Do you have any comment for him, Charlie? Well, your attitude on that subject reminds me of a famous headmaster who used to address the graduating class every year, and he'd say, you know, he says, 5% of you people are going to end up criminals. And he says, I know exactly who you are. And he said, but I'm not going to tell you because it would deprive your of a sense of excitement. <laughs> and, uh, it, it, companies that constantly told their shareholders what the intrinsic value was, where the real estate holding companies in corporate form, and I must say that the amount of folly and misbehavior that crept into that process was disgusting. We would be disassociating with a bad group if we were to change our ways. Bill Zuckendorf Sr., I think, was probably the first one to do that with Webb and Knapp back in the uh, late 50s. I, I've got, I still have those annual reports, and he would announce, you know, like the eight decimal places what the, uh, what the intrinsic value of Webb and Knapp was, and he did it right till the day they filed for Chapter 11. <laughs> I remember that well because uh, somebody said that he fell into bankruptcy, and somebody else said, how can you fall off a pancake? <laughs> Beware of people that give you a lot of numbers about their businesses, I mean, in terms of, uh, in terms of projections or, or, or valuations or that sort of thing. We try to give you all of the numbers that we would use ourselves in making our own calculations of value. We, we really, if, if you read the Berkshire reports, you essentially, you have all the information that, 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 that Charlie and I would use in making a decision about, about the security. Uh, and uh, uh, if there's anything really lacking in that respect, you know, we, we I, we would actually we would truly appreciate hearing from you because we want to have that kind of information in the report. But then we want you to make the calculation. 
But we've stuck, to, I mean, that material, for example, on the float in the insurance business, we consider that quite relevant, obviously, because we use up almost a page uh, printing it. Uh, pretty serious stuff at Berkshire. The, uh, but that, that, that is relevant. I mean, the, the, your interpretation may be different than, than mine or Charlie's, but that, that, uh, those are important numbers. And we could give you a lot of baloney about satisfied policyholders, you know, in, in Lincoln, Nebraska, wouldn't tell you a thing about what the, what the company's worth and have pictures of them and happy, you know, receiving the check from the agent, all of that. But, uh, we're not going to do that at um, Zone 1. Mike Macy from Indianapolis. I have really enjoyed reading your annual letters and your annual report, and I've gone back and read all the older ones, too. They're, they're terrific. I have also enjoyed reading the two books by Peter Lynch. And I see a lot of commonalities between the two of you, the way you think and your philosophy, etc. I'd certainly appreciate it if you'd make a few comments on what you think of Peter Lynch, the things he says in his two books and the advice that he gives to investors. Thank well, you. I know Peter, I don't know him well, but, I, but I, we played bridge together in Omaha, as a matter of fact. And I, I, I like him personally, and I, obviously he has an outstanding record. And he has written those two books which have been bestsellers about his investment philosophy. I don't really have anything, you know, I'm not going to embroider on his. We ha there is a, there, there's, there's certainly a fair amount of overlap. There's some difference. Peter obviously likes to diversify a lot more than, than I do. I mean, he, he, he owns more stocks than the names of companies I can remember. I mean, but, but that's Peter. And I, uh, you know, I, uh, I've said in, in investing in the past that there's more than one way to get to heaven. And that, that there, there isn't a true religion in this, but there's some very useful religions. And uh, Peter's got one, and I think we've got one that's useful too, and there is a lot of overlap. But I would not do as well if I tried to do it the way Peter does it, and he probably wouldn't do as well if he tried to do it exactly the way I do it. I like him personally very much. He's a high-grade guy. Zone two. Mr. Buffett, Mr. Munger, uh, my name is Dave Lankus. I'm a senior editor at uh, Business Insurance Magazine. A two-part question for you. Can you uh, explain a little bit uh, regarding your primary insurance operations? Uh, what drove up written premiums by more than 50% last year, and if you expect that to uh, continue this year? And then regarding your earlier comments on the uh, uh, stupid things uh, reinsurers can do in mass, um, can you explain uh, what potential pitfalls that the uh, new CAT facilities in Bermuda will have to avoid that you uh, feel Berkshire Hathaway won't fall into? Well, the, f the first question about our primary insurance, uh, the figures, uh, you you'll find it way in the back someplace, but it, it, they're, they're a little distorted because we bought central states indemnity uh, uh, late in the year 92 so that they, there, there's a lot more premium volume in there for central states in 93 than there was in 92. Our basic national indemnity's basic insurance which is auto and or commercial auto and general liability premium volume was very, fairly flat the home state operation fairly flat Cyprus up somewhat uh, but those numbers were not anything like the changes so our business last year pro forma for including central states indemnity for all of 92 would not have shown a dramatic change. There really hasn't been much happen in our primary business, except that it's been run, it's, it's done very well, but it is, it is not growing or exploding, and that's true this year as well as last year. 
It's a good business, uh, and it could grow in certain kinds of markets very substantially, but it is not growing in this market, and it, it did not grow last year, although its underwriting was very good. Uh, in the reinsurance business, I think essentially the difference in, in our reinsurance business from many others, I, uh, you know, it doesn't include them all in a place like Bermuda, is that is, is the, essentially the difference that may exist in, in, in our operations and securities versus other people. We will, we will offer reinsurance at any time uh, in very large quantities uh, at prices we think make sense. But we won't do business if, if, if we don't think it makes sense, just like we will buy securities to the extent of the cash we have available if, if, if they make sense. But we have no interest in being in the stock market per se, just to be in it. We want to, we want to own securities that make sense to us. I think for most managements, if the only thing they're in is the reinsurance business, they may like it better when, the, when, when prices make sense, but they will, I think they will be prone to do quite a bit of business when prices don't make sense as well because there's no alternative except to give the money back to the owners and that is not something that most managements you know, do somersaults over. So I think, I think we are in a favored position essentially being having the flexibility of, 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 of capital allocation that lets us uh, take the lack of business with a certain equanimity that, that, that most managements uh, probably can't because of their their sole focus uh, on the business. Uh, rates will get silly in all, in all likelihood after a period when nothing much happens, when you've had a couple of years of good experience. We price to what we think is exposure, we don't price to experience. I mean, the fact that there was no big hurricane last year, I forget the name of the one that was coming in at North Carolina and then it veered out essentially, but to us, it has nothing to do with the rates next year, whether that hurricane actually came in in a big way or veered out into the Atlantic again. I mean, we, we are pricing to exposure. And everyone says that, but the market tends to price and respond to experience and generally to recent experience. That's why all the, all the, uh, the retrocessional operations in London, you know, the, and the spiral went busted because they, they priced in our view, they price to experience rather than to exposure. It's very hard not to do that, to be there year after year with, with, with business coming by and investors expecting things of you and not do that. But we will never knowingly do that. We may get influenced subconsciously in some way to do that, but we will not do that any more than we will accept stock market norms as being the proper way for us to invest money in equities. At, uh, Basically, in, when you lay out money or accept insurance risks, you really have to think for yourself. No, you, you cannot let the market uh, think for you. Charlie? Yeah, I, I think Berkshire is, is basically a very old-fashioned kind of a place, and it tries to exert discipline to stay old-fashioned. And I don't mean old-fashioned stupid, I mean you know, the eternal verity, so to speak. Uh, basic mathematics, you know, basic horse sense, uh, uh, basic fear, uh, basic discriminations regarding human nature, all very old-fashioned. And uh, if you just do that with a certain amount of discipline, 
I think it's likely to work out quite well. Stolen free? David Gottesman from New York. It's no wonder that this meeting draws stockholders from all over the country. And despite the talk about age today, I'm happy to say this meeting gets better every year. Berkshire stands unique in American business as a company whose name has become synonymous with management excellence. Unlike many American corporations, we as stockholders don't have to worry about reorganizations, large write-offs, massive restructurings, overstated earnings, and overpaid executives with strategic visions. Instead, year in and year out, we enjoy the benefits of the common sense and brilliance of Charlie and Warren. What did you say your name was? I want to add. <laughs> I want to add to that to say nothing of your good humor. It's easy to take such consistently outstanding results for granted, but we in this room are the direct beneficiaries of their efforts. By our presence here today, we show our appreciation to them for their exceptional performance. But we can also demonstrate it in another way. I would like to suggest we give them a rousing hand of applause for a job well done. Mm -hmm. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. That was Sandy Gottesman. We worked together for 30-odd uh, years, and he's finally got that doubt. I appreciate that, Sandy. <laughs> With that, we will adjourn, and, and anyone, anyone who wants to stay around, uh, we'll, we'll reconvene in 15 minutes, and then we'll be here till about 1.15. And for the rest of you, there's buses, candy, et cetera, world books out there. <laughs> Thank you. Zone two now, we'll, I don't know where zone two is, but we'll. <laughs> Do you feel basically the same about your investment in Guinness now as when you made the investment in terms of the company? Well, I wouldn't like to comment on, 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 on anything that we own in terms of how we rank, rate them as desirability or anything. I mean, whether it's Coke or Gillette or anything, it, it, uh, we, we made decisions at a given time at a given price, which you can figure out by looking at our purchases, but we may be buying or selling any of those securities right as we talk and uh, we simply don't think it's in the interest of Berkshire shareholders as a group to be talking about things that we could be buying or selling. Hi, David Winters from Mountain Lakes, New Jersey. I'm just wondering, um, World Books had a tough time lately and I'm wondering if there's things you're doing to try to improve that and also uh, the Buffalo News has been fabulous and I'm kind of wondering what's driving the Buffalo News. Buffalo News is doing what? Fabulously. Yeah, well, it's doing well, right. Well, I would say you got to give credit to Stan Lipsy. I'm not sure whether Stan's here right now, but uh, who's been running the news. Uh, World Book, in terms of unit sales, as we put in the report, have fallen off significantly the last few, few years. It's actually surprising, in a sense, how well the profits have held up, because they've done a good job, and very good job in that respect. And as we put in the report, we don't know the answer uh, precisely. We are, Ralph Shea is, has, has taken some actions, is taking some actions that 
that he thinks will improve the operations. Ralph Record as a manager is absolutely at the top of the list. I mean, it, I wrote about it in the 1992 report. In 1993, Ralph did even better. I mean, it was a fabulous. I think I'm probably may have been 110 or so million pre-tax on, on, on 90 some million of average equity capital or something of the sort. So it's, it's a fabulous record. But Encyclopedia Britannica, as you probably know, ran at a loss last year. The, uh, the, the encyclopedia business has been very, has been poor. Uh, could be due to electronic competition, could be due to, uh, to uh, recruiting problems for salespeople. Obviously can be a combination of many factors. If we, we knew the answer, we'd have, you wouldn't be seeing those figures right now, but, uh, but it, it, is a, it is a top item of attention for for Ralph, he takes anything that's not performing as well as before very seriously, and uh, we will see what happens. But I don't have a prediction on it. I, I wish I knew the answer. I don't see any variables to to in any uh, uh, in any intelligent way uh, tell you. Or we put in the report the best we could do on that. Uh, the profitability, as, as like I say, has been pretty good. But obviously, current trends of new sales will catch up with us at, at some point unless we unless we boost unit sales. I don't think our market share, uh, if you look at print encyclopedias, has fallen, but I can't be sure of that, but I, I, I think that's probably true. But there are an awful lot of encyclopedias going out there as part of a bundled product with computer sales. And, uh, Lee again from Palo Alto. By uh, Omaha standards, you are a relatively young man. And every year, you point out that Berkshire's size now precludes you from making the great relatively small trades which made your reput reputation. How much thought have you given to breaking up Berkshire into smaller entities? How much what? How much thought have you given into breaking up Berkshire into smaller entities which would allow you to make those nice small wonderful trades that you made from the beginning. It wouldn't, it wouldn't, it wouldn't do any good to break into smaller entities because I'd, I'd still own, you know, we'd still have 10 billion plus of, of, of capital to be responsible for wherever it would be. So I, the, uh, we, we could distribute it out to the shareholders and, and, and let them make their own decisions, obviously. And anytime we thought that, that we weren't going to get more than a dollar of value per dollar retained, that obviously would be the course to follow, but there's no magic to creating multiple little, I mean, we could, we could, we could call Berkshire 2, Berkshire 3, Berkshire 3, multiple little, I mean, we could, we, could, we could call Berkshire 2, Berkshire 3, Berkshire 4, but you still got the problem, there's $10 billion to invest in, and, and uh, it doesn't really solve anything. Charlie, do you have any thoughts on that? No, the uh, Berkshire is, um, incredibly decentralized in the in terms of uh, power and decisions resting in the operating divisions in terms of the marketable security it's securities it's incredibly centralized and so far uh, we have not had any big penalty from not being able to do the things that we did when we were young eventually we will reach the penalty yeah, I think we're, 
There's no question we could earn higher percentage returns working with $100,000, though, than $10 billion. But, yeah. but, uh, but it hasn't hurt us as much as we thought it would as, 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 as size has increased. But um, your universe of opportunity shrinks. But it shrinks no matter. I mean, you can, you can set it up in 20 bank accounts or one bank account, but you still the universe still has to, to fit the $10 billion in aggregate. Now, how are we doing this? Do we have another zone over there? Yeah. Uh, Michael Bunyaner, um, New York City. T two questions. One, last year you discussed in your annual report uh, your investment in general dynamics, and you also gave your proxy to the company and its management. Uh, this year it appears you have sold the stock. Uh, this year what? This year it appears that you have sold the stock in general dynamics. What has changed that you sold 20% of your stake? This is clincher number one, and I have number two. Mm -hmm. Probably inappropriate to be talking about what we're buying or selling, uh, except to the extent that we make a public, have to make a public announcement, which on something like General Dynamics, we've got 13G requirements if we change by more than 5%, and we also have, as long as we own more than 10%, we have monthly reporting requirements under Form 4. We think the management of General Dynamics has done an absolutely sensational job. Obviously, also, it isn't the kind of business, basically, that we have a 20-year view on or something of the sort. So it, 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 uh, the, the shareholders of General Dynamics have been extraordinarily well served by, by the management of that company. And, uh, and we've, we, uh, we're thankful because we've prospered accordingly. But should I take from this comment that you have changed your view about the business itself? Pardon me? Should I take from your comment that you have changed your view about the business itself? No. no I think you can take my comments as saying just what I've said. Okay. <laughs> uh, question number two. Could you kind I, of... I think we want, to, we want to give people a chance around the room. That, and then it, when, when in the zone you're in, when a second question comes along, we'll be, we'll be fine. But we want, to, we want to get as many people in this hour as we can because this is the hardcore here. Zone one. It appeared to me that in uh, 1993, the variation between the stock price for the high and the low was much greater in years than years in the past. Would you mind commenting on that? Well, there was more volatility in the price of Berkshire last year. And as I put in the annual report, the stock overperformed the business last year. Now, over any 10 or 20 or 30 year history, Every year, the stock is going to perform a little differently, at least, in the business. I mean, it, it may slightly underperform or slightly overperform. We would prefer that those variations be as, as, as small as possible, uh, but there was more variability last year than, than historically has been the case, although we've had one or two other We've had a few years like that. We, uh, our best way to handle that is to give all the information we can to shareholders and prospective shareholders and follow policies that we think will induce the investment oriented with long time horizons to join us and not to encourage other people. But occasionally, you know, we can't guarantee that result. One of the things that was interesting to me, I don't know whether it was three months ago or when, but I, I happened to <clears throat> be talking to the specialist, terrific specialist, Jimmy McGuire. I, he had to leave, but he was here earlier in the, in the session. and. Uh, I think at the time the stock was around 16,000 or something like that. And 
he had some rather significant stop loss orders on the books at 15.5 or thereabouts, involving some hundreds of shares. And that, to me, is a signal that you know we have some people that are, in my view, are not really the kind of owners that we would like to attract. Because why somebody wants to put in an order to sell something for fifteen thousand five hundred that they don't want to sell at sixteen thousand is beyond me. But and the, the, the idea of people using stop loss orders with Berkshire obviously it tells me that we've got some people in that that are using it as a trading vehicle of some sort or, or have some totally non-investment type calculations in their mind. I don't think we have very many of them, but obviously if we have enough people like that, you will have a more volatile stock than if you have a whole bunch of people who look at it as something that they're going to hold for the rest of their life. And uh, um, the stock did go down at that time and hit 15,500. And there were, that, I think it was close to 300 shares, which is four and a half million dollars worth of stock. And somebody made a decision, apparently, that they, or some small number of people, made a decision that they wanted to sell something at 15500 that they could have sold for 16000 The lower it went, the better they liked it, apparently. I mean, the better they liked the sale. Which, you know, has always struck me as like having a house that, that you like and you're living in, and, you know, it's worth $100,000, and you tell your broker, you know, if anybody ever comes along and offers 90, you want to sell it. I mean, it, it doesn't make any sense to me. <laughs> but it, it has... I would say that there's been some small, I think relatively small tendency for people to get, uh, relatively few people, but to get more interested in the price of the stock uh, than in, in, in terms of, and, and thinking of it in terms of whether it's going to go up or down in the next six months than might formerly have been the case. I think we're unusually well blushed in that respect in that, in that we've got people who basically want to own it for a very long time. But to the extent that you get people who were owning it because they think the stock market's going to go up or something of that sort is going to happen, that is, that is not good news from our standpoint, and it will increase the volatility in it. We will do nothing to encourage that. Zone two? Yes, Mr. Buffett, uh, Steve Lang from Toronto. Um, I was just curious about when you were saying that uh, one of the best things that could happen to uh, shareholders is the the market goes down and you're able to buy good businesses at foolish prices. And, and then a little later on you were saying that, uh, that we could judge your ability to do what it is that you feel you should be doing by how much cash you have in the account at any given point in time. And, and by, by what? By the amount of cash that you have in the account. In other words, I guess what you feel you're supposed to be doing is investing the cash in, in good businesses. So I'm just wondering about that kind of dichotomy, where does the cash come from if the market does go down, if you've been successful in your first ability, would that be from the cash flow on the operations of the business, from the float? Yeah. Is yeah, that, so, so really the success of the company then is, is to some degree the fact that you're able to dollar cost average into the market on an ongoing basis, is that right? Well, it is not precise, but, but A, we do generate cash in, in a considerable amounts um, so that we will not husband cash simply because we think the market's going to go down or to buy something. But obviously, as cash comes in, we're always looking for things to do. And the cheaper that the, the market is generally, the more likely it is that we will find something that we understand and that we like and that the price will be attractive and that we will do. But uh, it isn't like we can change around the whole portfolio then because that doesn't gain us anything. I mean, we'd be selling things at lower prices to buy things at lower prices. But to the extent that we have net cash coming in, which we do and which we will have, um, on balance, we are 
you know, we are adding to our businesses at more attractive prices than would be the other case. And it's no prediction on any given company. I mean, whether it's Gillette or Coke, or it might be something we already own, it might be something we don't own, but we welcome the chance to, to, uh, to buy more shares. We're not wishing it on anybody, but if you asked us next month whether Berkshire would be better off if the whole stock market were down 50% or where it is now, we would be better off if it was down 50%, whether we had any cash on hand now or not, because we would be generating cash to buy things. Zone three. Uh, Byron Rainsdale from Raleigh, North Carolina. Thanks for your hospitality this weekend. Well, we thank you for coming, too. My, my question concerns Solomon Inc., and more specifically, Solomon Brothers. I know that you own the board of directors, I think, from 87 to the current time, very much interested in compensation there, and maybe on the compensation committee. Between 1987 and 1992, Solomon's financial results were quite dismal. Uh, in a very lumpy way, but overall quite dismal. In your opinion, if the compensation had been rational during this time, would Solomon have shown results that would make it a quite decent business? Would Solomon have won the, if the compensation if, been, if the yeah. past compensation been more rational? Decisions had been more rational, 87 to the current yeah. time. Would Solomon have done better? Yeah. Is that it? Yes, sir. Well, I would, yeah, I would, I would say that, that if, if the present people and the present compensation philosophy, which allows for very large payments for, for, for uh, very large results, I, 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 think it, I, I think the company would have done better. Yeah. It, it, you're going to see very big numbers paid in Wall Street. That, that is the nature of it. The, the trick is to pay them only when you're getting very big results for the owners. I mean, it, uh, uh, there's no way you're going to pay numbers that look like numbers in other industries and get great results for owners. But if you pay these big numbers, I think you should be getting very good results for owners. And uh, there, uh, the, the, the old system was not, uh, I mean, it wasn't, it, it wasn't totally off the mark on that, but it, it, was, it was far from an ideal system in my view. Zone one. Warren, I have one question. Last year you were using Coca-Cola puts as a way to increase income, and conversely if they were excised, as a way of increasing your position. Do you still use puts in this type on investments you wish they had to? Five million shares, as I remember, of Coke um, sometime early fall or thereabouts. I don't remember exactly last year. And the puts, uh, I think the premium was around seven and a half million dollars, and they were priced around 35. We have not done that very often. Um, and we're unlikely to do very much of it. For one thing, there are position limits on puts which don't apply to us, but they apply to the brokers for which uh, we do them. And, and those position limits were not clear before that, but we could, we could probably write puts on that same amount by doing it through a bunch of different brokers. It's not something we're, we're really very likely to do. I was happy to do it, and, and 
In that particular case, we made $7.5 million, but uh, we're better off probably, if, if, if we like something well enough to write a put on it, we're probably better off buying the security itself. And, it, and particularly since we can't do it in the kind of quantities that really would make it meaningful uh, uh, to Berkshire. Uh, there are securities I would not mind writing puts for 10 million shares or something, but I, that probably, it's, it's probably allowable for us to do it. It's not allowable. We'd probably have to do it through multiple brokers to get, to get the job done. And on balance, I don't think it's as useful a way to spend my time uh, as just looking for securities to buy outright. Charlie, do you have anything? No. Zone two. Mr. Buffett, I'm from, uh, I'm from West Point. My name is Rogers. Uh, a couple of months ago, there were stories in the World Herald that Berkshire Hathaway had taken a large position in Philip Morris and UST. But in your annual report, I don't see anything about that. Can you, can you uh, co comment? Yeah, I would say in the last two years, maybe, I'm just approximating, I've probably seen reports in either the Wall Street Journal, USA Today, maybe picked up by the Associated Press or in the Herald, but in, in papers of some significance, I've probably seen stories that we were buying maybe any one of 10 companies in aggregate over that period of time. I would say a significant majority were erroneous. We don't correct the erroneous ones because if we don't correct the erroneous ones, if, if we correct the erroneous ones and don't say anything about the correct ones, in effect, we're identifying the correct ones too. So we will never comment uh, on those stories, no matter how ridiculous they are. Um, and uh, uh, it's interesting because, you know, they keep getting printed. And frankly, from our standpoint, the fact that most of them are inaccurate is probably useful to us. Uh, we don't do anything to encourage it, but it, uh, the fact that uh, people are reading that we are buying ABC or XYZ when we aren't, uh, you know, that's, I, 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 I don't think people should be buying stocks because they're reading in the paper that we're buying something, but uh, if they do, they may, get, they may get cured of it at some point. Maybe the newspapers will even get cured of writing the stories when they don't know what, you know, what the facts are. But, uh, but uh, it, it's something we'll, we live with and we'll probably continue to live with. And I would say that based on history, if you read something about us buying or selling something other than through reports we filed with the SEC or regulatory bodies, the chances are well over 50%. That I can tell you based on history is correct. Well over 50% that it's wrong. Zone three. Do you expect that uh, Berkshire would become uh, one of the standard and poor 500 stocks or uh, a Dow Jones stock? Well, I, I, I think it's unlikely that it becomes a Dow Jones stock. I don't know what the criteria are for the S&P 500, but I imagine there's some reason why we don't fit. I, I don't know whether they have questions about uh, number of shares outstanding or I've, I've, never, I've never checked with S&P. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised if we have the largest market capitalization of any company that isn't in the S&P, although I don't know that. Uh, but they may have some criteria, uh, variety, that, that, that uh, preclude Berkshire being part of it. I've always thought it would be very interesting for those of you who like to uh, think about such things, that 
if we were part of the S&P 500 and enough people became indexed so that 60% of the market was indexed, and if Charlie and I wouldn't sell, which we wouldn't, it'd be an, it'd be an interesting proposition as to how the, how the index funds would ever get their 60% if they tried to replicate the S&P. Uh, I, I don't know whether they have rules even about concentration of ownership. That same line of thinking might have applied to Walmart or, or some company. Because just take the extreme example of a company that had 90% of its stock owned by one individual and 12% of the money in the market were indexed. Uh, and the 90% wouldn't sell it, would bring back the Northern Pacific Corner or something of the sort. And in any event, I don't think that's going to be a problem, and, and I don't think we are going to end up being in either index. So. Yeah, Zone 1. Mr. Buffett, my name is Aaron Morris. I'm from California. Uh, what I wanted to know was how you think about how, how large a position you're willing to take in a given security both in your case where you have new cash coming in that you can invest and in the case of an investor where they have a fixed amount of capital and they're trying to decide what's the most they should put into security that they really love. Well, uh, Charlie and I have, probably at our present size, we will never find anything that uh, we get as much money into as we want. I think that's probably true, Charlie, if we really like it. Yeah, I think that's quite likely. Yeah, so, you, we will probably never hit the limit. We would, we would love to. We'd love to find something we felt that strongly about, and occasionally we do, but we won't, we won't get as much money into it as we would wish, or as if we were running a million dollars of our own money or some number like that. So we are willing to put a lot of money into uh, a single security. When I ran the partnership, the limit I got to was about 40% in a single stock. I think, Charlie, when you ran your partnership, you had more than 40 percent. Sure. At, uh, <laughs> and we would do the same thing if we were running smaller partnerships or our own capital were smaller and we were running that ourselves. Because, now we're not going to do that unless we think we understand the business very well and we think that the, the nature of the business, what we're paying for it, the people running it, and all of that lead up to virtually no risk. And, uh, but you find those things occasionally, and we would put, assuming it were that much more attractive than the second, third, and fourth choices, we would put a big percentage of our, our net worth in it. Uh, we only advise you to do that, well, probably don't advise you to do it at all, maybe, but, but we would only advise you to do it if you're doing it based on your own conclusions about your own ideas of value and something that you really feel you know enough to buy the whole business. If, if your funds were sufficient and was being offered to you, you ought to really understand the business. But people do that all the time, incidentally, in private businesses, which have got terrible prospects. I mean, they buy dry cleaning establishments or filling stations or whatever, and they put very high franchises of some kind, they put a very high percentage of their net worth into something that a business is very risky, basically. I mean, it, uh, it, they, people put all their money in a farm. You know, it, uh, it's, it's, it's a business. It's subject to all kinds of business risks. So it's... It, it's not crazy if you understand the business well, and if the price is sufficiently attractive to put a very significant percentage of your net worth in. If you don't understand businesses, then you're better off diversifying, and, and fairly widely diversifying. Zone no, go ahead. Sorry. Berkshire has a substantial shareholder whose father accumulated the original position, and when he died, he left a very large estate. 
practically all of which was in two securities, Berkshire and one other outstanding company. And a bank was co-trustee, and the bank trust officer said, you've got to diversify this. And, uh, and it was a very large estate. And the young man who was co-trustee with the bank said, well, he says, you know, if my father had believed the way you do, he might have been a trust officer in a bank instead of leaving this large estate. And, <laughs> And uh, that, that, young, that young man holds the brochure to this day, and I suppose the bank is still giving the same advice. <laughs> Zone two. Mr. Buffett, this is uh, Chuck Peterson from Omaha. And I was just wondering if you could comment on the Coca-Cola company. You haven't really talked about it too much today in regards to what you foresee over the next five years, uh, earnings per share growth, and where this growth is perhaps going to come from. Was that the question about the growth of Coke? Yeah. Mm -hmm. You really have to come to your own conclusion. The Coca-Cola company writes, their annual reports are extremely good. I mean, they're very informative. Um, you know, you, you, my guess is that, at least if you read a few of the reports, you absolutely know as much about the Coca-Cola company as I would. But, but uh, in the end, you have, to, you have to make your own decisions about uh, growth potential profitability, potential, and all that. But the one thing I can assure you is that uh, um, probably no, if, if you spend a relatively small amount of time on it, the facts that you will have available to you for making a decision on that question will be, will be just as good, essentially, as the facts you'd get if you'd worked at the Coca-Cola company for 20 years or if you were a uh, food and beverage analyst in Wall Street or anything of the sort. That's the kind of businesses we like to look at or things that we think we can understand that way. And they're, they're, and they're also businesses that usually I think you could understand that way. But we don't like you to give you our answers. I mean, that, 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 that would not be a good idea. Zone three. David, uh, I'm sorry, David Swab uh, from Austin, Texas. I have a question pertaining to the convertible uh, bonds that were outstanding for about four years. Um, any thoughts on if you're a teacher to grade, if that was a good deal, bad deal, uh, how the money was applied compared to the cost of getting out of the bonds? Any thoughts? He wants to know if you think in retrospect your deal with the Lions was a good deal for Berkshire. No, I would say that uh, that if I knew everything at the time that we did the Lions deal, which was a convertible zero coupon, the venture, if I knew everything now, then that I know now, would we have done it? Probably pretty close. But, uh, we had relatively few bonds converted when we called when we called them, and so that it really wasn't a negative in that sense, but if, if we had more, con we could have easily had a lot more converted, and, and uh, that would not have been so good, obviously, if we'd ended up selling a lot of stock at 11800 or whatever it was. Uh, it's very hard to measure exactly what we did with the $400 million or so that, that we took in at the time. So I, 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 money being fungible, uh, separating that $400 million from other resources to measure the what happened on the, the plus side from having the money is hard to do. But my guess is, if you could play the whole hand over again, it probably was a 
maybe a tiny minus, to have issued them. What do you think, Charlie? Certainly close to a wash. Yeah. Now you can ask about U.S. Air, and that is one we would have been well to duck. Yeah. And I'm, I might say Charlie had nothing to do with that decision. He didn't even know about it until I did it. And when he knew about it, hmm. <laughs> Zone one. Just with respect to um, Berkshire's large uh, non-permanent holdings that are therefore illiquid, I'm just wondering what your strategy is for managing market impact when you do decide to sell uh, portions of those holdings, uh, given the intense scrutiny you're under. Question about the things we might sell and what's going to happen to the market when we sell them. That depends. I mean, it can be a very significant impact. It can be a it can be a negligible impact and, and uh, depends on market conditions. It depends on whether we might sell in a couple of large blocks to some institutions. It depends on, it could be, you know, there could be a tender offer or something of the sort we would sell through. So it's hard to measure, but it is a disadvantage. Size is a disadvantage. You're absolutely correct in the basic point, both in buying and in selling. And uh, we don't know any way around that. We, so we, we allow for it in terms of what we expect, uh, you know, the kind of possibilities uh, we need to see. And we do, we sell so infrequently that it's, it's not a crusher of a negative uh, point, but it's, it's a negative we have that you do not. Zone two. My name is Inez Ripley. I'm from Roanoke, Virginia. Does Berkshire Hathaway or any of its subsidiaries have key man insurance on you and Mr. Munger. Does, does Berkshire have key man insurance on? Oh, no, no, we have no, we have no, uh, no life insurance, to my knowledge, on anyone except the maybe standard little group life contracts people have. We have no key man insurance. It really, it really doesn't. It wouldn't be material. I mean, if we have a market value of. Uh, 18 billion or something like that. And if it if it really didn't, if it a one, if it made a one percent difference, it'd be 180 million dollars. And basically, the math of intelligently selling insurance is better than the math of intelligently buying insurance. <laughs> Zone three. Mr. Buffett, I'm Barry Ziskin from Mesa, Arizona, a longtime admirer of yours. Question uh, pertains to Guinness. I remember reading in a publication I greatly respect, uh, Outst um, Outstanding Investor Digest by Henry Emerson in New York, that uh, back in, I think it was 58 or 59, you made an investment in Cuba, decided never to make an investment outside the United States again at, at that time. Um, have subsequently invested in Guinness. I'm a fellow investor in Guinness, have invested in Guinness for and its sister company, Louis Vuitton Moet Hennessy, for um, over five years. And um, I'm very happy with those investments, by the way. There's been a restructuring, as you know, of the Guinness-LVMH relationship, where Guinness no longer owns 24% of LVMH. Rather, it owns only its distilling, or I should say, alcoholic beverage-related businesses. Part, right? right, the Moet Hennessy part. Uh, the other parts of uh, LVMH are, are showing better results these days, namely the Louis Vuitton luggage as well as the Christian Dior perfume. They've also expanded into the newspaper business this past year, a uh, business that you understand. Uh, do you intend um, to uh, look at the possibility 
first of all, of um, participating in those businesses that you no longer own now with the restructured Guinness LVMH deal through some other form. Um, and the second question relates to the currency risk inherent in the uh, Guinness investment. Um, having bought it at about a dollar eighty, as you mentioned, uh, pound sterling now down to about a dollar forty-eight. The cost of uh, hedging foreign currency through the FX has diminished through the combination of lower interest rates in the UK and the higher interest rates most recently in the US to just about zero. Um, I take it we're all investors in companies, not speculators in currencies. So the second part of the question is, do you intend to do anything about the currency risk portion of that investment? Well, LVMH, uh, which as you mentioned was 24% owned by Guinness, you know, that's one of thousands of securities that we could be a buyer or seller. So I, I really don't want to comment on LVMH's specific attractiveness uh, or lack thereof. And Guinness, I think what Guinness did was quite logical. I mean, their, their interest in that operation was basically through the, the distribution advantages that it gave to Guinness's own brands around the world to be hooked up with Moet Hennessy and vice versa. So I, I think what they did was logical. You can, uh, the question of the exchange rate and all of that, the exchange rate in terms of what they got in the, in the, uh, spirits business versus what they gave up in the, the luggage businesses and Christian Dior and a few things and you can, you can form your own opinion on that. But I think the, the logic was, was sound. But in terms of whether we want to be an LVMH by itself, that's, that's like any other security which we really can't, uh, we really can't answer. Uh, uh, second question related to uh, hedging. He yeah, the hedging do, do of currency. The answer, to, the answer to that is we don't, and, and, and Coca-Cola, as I mentioned, gets 80% of their earnings from a variety of currencies, the yen and the mark being two very important ones. They're going to be getting a very high percentage five years from now, ten years from now. Uh, they do certain currency transactions, but it's a practical matter. If you own Coca-Cola, you own a bunch of foreign bonds with coupons on them, denominated in local currencies, that go on forever. Now, should you try and engage in currency swaps on all those coupons? You don't know what those coupons are yet, because you don't know how much they're going to earn in Japan or Germany, but you do know it's going to go on for decades, and they're going to be very significant sums. Should you try and engage in a whole bunch of currency swaps to go on out and convert all that stream into dollars? We basically don't think it's worth it. We don't think our opinion on currencies is any good. We don't think, we think the market probably knows, well, we know it knows as much about it. It probably knows more about currencies, but it, we don't know, we do not know more than the market does about currencies. So there are costs to hedging. Uh, and even though interest rate structures may cause the, the curve to look flat going out forward so that, in effect, there's no contango on it. It's still, there's still the cost, there are costs in it. Now, it's, it's a relatively efficient market, so that they're not huge. But we, we see no reason to incur those costs with, with what we regard as a totally a 50-50 proposition. And it really doesn't go out that far anyway. I mean, we could do it for a couple of years. But if you take that, the way we look at businesses being the discounted flow of, of, of future cash out between now and Judgment Day, uh, we, we can't really hedge that kind of a, a risk anyway. We could keep rolling hedges, but there's a cost to it that we don't want to incur. We don't, 
we wouldn't worry a whole lot about whether some portion of our earnings, whether it's from Guinness, whether it's from Coke, whether it's from Gillette, uh, are denominated in some mixture of marks and pounds and yen and dollars, or whether they're all in dollars. We'd slightly prefer it if it were all in dollars, but we don't, we don't lose sleep over the fact that it may be coming from a mix of currencies like that. We wouldn't like it in terms of, obviously, some very weak currencies. Zone one. Uh, Lawrence Grom in Mill Valley, California. On page 13 of the annual report, uh, in on talking about the insurance operation, you say that it uh, possesses an intrinsic value that exceeds its book value by a large amount, larger, in fact, than is the case at any other Berkshire business. To refine an earlier question that was asked, um, could, could you tell me whether you mean that it is larger in by a percentage or in absolute dollars, that is? By, a, by absolute dollars. And, and that's what you're referring yeah, to. Yeah, by absolute It's very hard to stick a percentage figure on the insurance business because we have so much capital in there that, 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 uh, that uh, and, 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 and we have other businesses. I think that the, uh, we've, got, we've got businesses with a book value of, of in the tens of millions that are worth in the many hundreds of millions. So you, can't, you, you couldn't apply that to the insurance company base. So it's absolute dollars. But in terms of absolute dollars, we think the excess of intrinsic value over carrying value, at least I do, is substantially greater for the insurance business than any other business we own. Charlie, do you have any no, I thoughts on that? No, that's exactly right. Mm -hmm. Joe Little, uh, Vancouver, Canada. Does the uh, management succession issue for the top job at Coca-Cola concern you? <coughs> Man management picture, you do what with the? The management succession issue over the next several years. Oh yeah, the top job Does at Coca-Cola. Yeah, I, I think any announcement that will, from that would come with, from Coca-Cola. He said, "Do you like it? Does it concern you?" Oh, I'm, I'm not concerned at all. No. Now, Coca-Cola is very well managed. <laughs> Zone three. Yeah, uh, Chris Stavrou from New York. Uh, according to the latest Solomon Brothers proxy, if uh, Derek earns 30% uh, on allocated equity of Solomon Brothers, provided that that's at least 10% above the return uh, for competitors, uh, he could earn uh, a bonus of $24 million. My question is whether that return number is is reduced by a charge for preferred dividends. I, Charlie, do you remember on the comp commission? I can't remember the detail on I, that. I think the equity, I, I, my, my, I'm fairly sure, but I'm not positive, that the equity figure would include our preferred, but not non-convertible preferreds, and it would apply to the earnings applicable to the to our preferred plus common, but not. But it would it would be after, after dividends on non-convertible preferred. But I, you know, I, have, I I'm not on the comp committee, and I I, I have not read the the, uh, the description that carefully. Well, I am, and I can't remember. <laughs> but I will tell you one thing I do remember about that, and that is a target 
which would be one, would be hellishly hard to hit. It'd be unbelievable. I mean, I mean it, that it, is, it, you're talking about Babe Ruth. Squared. Yeah, doing uh, 150 home runs in a season instead of, uh, if that happens, you, you'll be very glad to pay the money. Very, either, uh, under, either, under either calculation. Yeah, it, it, it really, it, but it, it, you know, I'm glad it's there. <laughs> I hope Derek's paying attention to it. Zone one. Hi, um, Chris Davis again from New York. I wanted to uh, ask if you, you, I feel there, there's such a huge uh, discrepancy between the valuation of some of your holdings versus others in terms of the market valuation, uh, in terms of price to earnings, price to book. In your opinion, do the growth prospects of Solomon Brothers or the quality or your anticipation of your ability to clip the coupons at Solomon Brothers justify such a dramatic discount to the growth prospects of Coca-Cola or Gillette in terms of our ability as Berkshire shareholders to clip those coupons. And if you could explain or perhaps share your thoughts on why the market perception, if it is, uh, 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 justifies that, that distinction. Yeah, I, I'm not sure I can answer that question without getting into a, a discussion of the relative merits of the two companies or the three companies you mentioned at these prices. but. Uh, um, Solomon and Coca-Cola are obviously very different kinds of businesses, or Solomon and Gillette, and Charlie and I uh, do our best to to uh, try to understand the businesses. Obviously, it's easier to understand the future of a Coca-Cola than it is a Solomon, but that doesn't mean it's a better buy. And uh, what you see at any given time in our holdings is partly the historical accident, even, of, of of when we bought and when we had money available and all that, but it reflected an affirmative decision at that point, obviously. And uh, our guess would be that that uh, you know we we would feel reasonably good about anything that that we owned in terms of the price at, at which we bought it and the facts at the time we bought it and the facts change over time. Solomon, I think, is a a better company now than it was uh, some years back. But it's still in a business that can be very volatile, and it, it has a small amount, as does any investment banking firm, and does any commercial banking firm, of systemic risk. I mean, you can't get rid of that. Charlie, you want to? No, I've got nothing to add. Zone two. Thank you, Sean Barry, Regina, Canada. Uh, Mr. Buffett, you've indicated that most of us in this room could acquire a lot of the information that you and Charlie acquire through the annual reports. Yet you both also indicated that the uh, gap rules a lot of times leave a little to be desired. Could you perhaps uh, give an indication as to how you and Charlie come up with the economic value or the intrinsic value of the businesses that you uh, finally decide to invest in and, and a little bit about the process that you go through with that? Thank you. Uh, well, the, the, you know, we, it, in, the, <clears throat> in the 1992 annual report, we discussed that a fair amount, but the economic value of any asset essentially is the, is the present value, the appropriate interest rate of all the future streams of cash going in or out of the business. And there are all kinds of businesses that Charlie and I don't think we have the faintest idea what 
that that future stream will look like. And if we don't have the faintest idea what the future stream is going to look like, we don't have the faintest idea what it's worth now. now that, so if you think you know what the price of a stock should be today, but you don't think you have any idea what the stream of cash will be over the next 20 years, you've got uh, uh, cognitive dissonance, I guess is what they call it. Uh, the, uh, so we are looking for things where we feel fairly high degree of probability that we can come within a range of, of looking at those numbers out over a period of time, and then we discount them back. And we are more concerned with the certainty of those numbers than we are with getting the one that looks absolutely the cheapest, but based upon numbers that we don't have any, uh, don't have great confidence in. And that's, that's basically what economic value is all about. The numbers in any accounting report mean nothing per se as to economic value. They are guidelines to tell you something about how to get at economic value. But they don't tell you anything. It, there are no answers in the financial statements. There are, there are guidelines to enable you to figure out the answer. And to figure out that answer, you have to understand something about business. You don't have to understand a lot about mathematics. I mean, the math is, is, is not complicated. But you do have to understand something about the business. But that's the same thing you would do if you're going to buy an apartment house or a farm uh, or any other small business you might be interested in. You would try to figure out what you were laying out currently and what you were likely to get back over time and how certain you felt about getting it and how it compared to other alternatives. That's all we do. We just do it with, with large businesses, basically. The, account, the, the, the accounting figures are very helpful to us in the sense that they, they generally guide us to, to what we should be thinking about. And, 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 uh, and of course, if we find numbers where it looks like people are, are taking the most optimistic interpretation of things that they can under GAAP and all of that, we get very worried about people who, who look like they uh, massage the numbers in any way. And there are plenty of people that do. Zone three. I'm Howard Baskin from Kansas City. When you uh, are estimating a growth rate on a, uh, a company I'm at, of a very predictable company, I imagine uh, you apply a big margin of safety to it. What kind of rate do you generally apply? I mean, high single digits? In the margin of safety or the? Uh, what, what kind of growth rate would you, on a predictable company, might you We are willing to buy at? companies that aren't going to grow at all, but, uh, okay. it, it, assuming we get enough for our money when we, when we do it. So it, it, we are not looking, we are looking at, at projecting numbers out as to what kind of cash we think we'll get back over time. But, uh, you know, would you rather have a savings, if you're going to put a million dollars in a savings account, would you rather have something that paid you 10% a year and never changed, or would you rather have something that paid you 2% a year and increased to 10% a year? Well, you can, you, you can work out the math to answer those questions, but you can, you can certainly have a situation where there's absolutely no growth in the business, and it's a much better investment than some company that's going to grow at very substantial rates, particularly if they're going to need capital in order to grow. There's a huge difference in the business that grows and requires a lot of capital to do so and the business that grows and doesn't require capital. And I would say that generally financial analysts do not give adequate weight to the, to the difference in those. Uh, in fact, it's amazing how little 
attention is, is, is paid to that. But, uh, believe me, if you're investing, you should pay a lot of attention to it. Charlie? I, I agree with that, but it, it, it's fairly simple, but it's not so simple it can all be explained in one sentence. Our, some of our best businesses that we own outright don't grow, but they, they, they throw off lots of money which we can use to buy something else. And therefore our capital is growing without physical growth being in the business. And we are much better off being in that kind of a situation than being in some business that itself is growing but that takes up all the money in order to grow and doesn't produce that high returns as we go along. The, a lot of managements don't understand that very well, actually. Zone one. Byron Wien from New York. You said that uh, you decentralize the operating decisions but centralize the capital allocation decisions. What kind of staff do you have in, in Omaha to help you with the capital allocation decisions and the stock selection decisions you make? Or do you and Charlie do that pretty much by yourselves? Yeah, we, we don't have any staff to help us on it. I mean, basically, we, we tell them to mail all the money to Omaha. and. <laughs> Then when we get there, we put our arms around it and, and uh, we allocate all the capital ourselves. I mean, that, that, is, that is our job. Yeah. And uh, we don't feel we should delegate. I mean, we, we wouldn't do it anyway. Our personalities aren't such that we would delegate our, allocating our own money to somebody, letting somebody else allocate our own money. But, but we, we feel that's our job. And, and it's interesting, and we've, I've written about this in the past, that. That's an important job for most managements. There are some companies where it's not, but it's, it, it usually is a very important job for most managements. And if you take a CEO that's in a job for 10 years and he has a business that earns, say, 12% on equity and, he's, and, he, and he pays out a third, that means he's got 8% per year of equity. I mean, you th when you think of his tenure in office, how much capital he's allocated, it, it's, it's an enormous factor uh, over time. And yet, probably relatively few chief executives are either trained for or, or are selected on the basis of their ability to allocate capital. I mean, they, they get there through other routes. So I've said it's like you know, somebody playing the piano all their life and then getting to Carnegie Hall and they hand them a violin. I mean, it, it, is, it, is, uh, it is a different function than most, than the route, than the, than the functions that exist along the routes to the CEO's job at most companies. And so many CEOs, when they get there, think they can solve it by either having a staff that does it or by, by, uh, by uh, hiring consultants or whatever it may be. And, and in our view, that is, you know, that's a terrible mistake because it's, uh, uh, it is, if not the key function of the CEO, it's one of two or three key, key functions at say 80 or 90% of all companies. And if you can't do it yourself, um, you're going to make a lot of mistakes. You may make a lot of mistakes even if you do it yourself. But if you, uh, you know, you wouldn't want anybody in any other position of that importance in the company, essentially saying, "I don't know how to do this, so I'm going to have somebody else do it." When it's their key responsibility. But that's the way it works in in, in business. And uh, Charlie and I take responsibility for all capital allocation decisions other than just sort of routine expenditures at the, at the operating businesses. And we don't get into those at all. I mean, if, 
if our managers are spending three or four million dollars a year on machinery, or one of them is, I mean, on machinery, equipment, plants, new leases, we have no review process on that. We, uh, we, we don't have a staff at headquarters. We don't, we don't waste the time to do that. We, we think those people know how to allocate the, the money that relates to the actual operations of their business. We, we think in terms of the capital that is generated above that, that that's, that's our job. Charlie? Yeah. yeah, I would say we have practically nobody at headquarters in Omaha. And one of the reasons Warren shines up so well is, you know, he's being compared to practically nobody. <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, I might say, if, one interesting, when we're having this meeting, for example, I think there's one person there in the office. I mean, it, it, the rest of them are, are down here helping on the meeting. I well, mean, here, it, yeah, here we are, Warren and I are selling candy and encyclopedias and so forth. The chief financial officer of Berkshire Hathaway is handling the microphones. I mean, this makes Southwest Airlines look like they don't understand. Cost accounting. <laughs> Cost accounting, yeah. I mean, it's a very old-fashioned place. And by the way, speaking of hawking our merchandise, if any of you have safety deposit boxes full of Berkshire Hathaway certificates and have children or grandchildren who don't have World Book in print in the house, you are making a very serious error. That is a marvelous thing for to have in a house with And the discount only applies the discount only applies today. <laughs> I think that's right. <laughs> it is. That is it it may not be selling too well because of the current vogue for uh, encyclopedias on computers. And by the way, those encyclopedias that are available are inferior compared to Worldbook, which is very user friendly for children and I like it that way myself. And, and uh, that, is, that is one product you really ought to buy. We, we both use it personally. I mean, I, 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 uh, I keep a set at the office and a set at home. And I, uh, I give away more of that lot. product than any other product that Berkshire Hathaway makes in any subsidiary. It's a perfectly fabulous human achievement to edit a thing to make, uh, that user friendly and with that much wisdom encapsulated. It is a, it's a fabulous thing. Zone two. Pass Sadukhan from Houston, Texas. From time to time, you have quoted John Maynard Keynes, the, the British economist. So I would assume that you have read his investment writings uh, very extensively. What are two or three investment lessons, in your opinion, one can learn from that economist? Well, I forget which, I think it's chapter eight of the general theory. Remember Charlie, or is it chapter? No, no. There's, there's one chapter in the general theory that relates to, to markets and the psychology of markets uh, and the behavior market participants and so on. That probably, is, aside from Ben Graham's two chapters, eight and 20 in, in, in the intelligent investor, I think I think you'll find uh, you get as much wisdom from reading that as as as, as anything written in investments, and uh, you'll know it when you see it in the general theory. It's it, uh, it, 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 it's a chapter that jumps out to you about the securities and so on. And I could be chapter eight, but I may be wrong on that. Um, but I would I would recommend reading that Keynes and and Graham from vastly different starting points came to the same conclusion 
uh, at about the same time in the 30s as to uh, the soundest way to invest over time. Uh, they differed some on their ideas on diversification. Keynes believed in diversifying far less than did Graham. But uh, Keynes started off with the wrong theory, I would say, in the, in the 20s, and uh, essentially tried to predict business cycles and markets, and, and then shifted to fundamental analysis of businesses in the 30s and did extremely well. And about the same time Graham was writing his, his first material, I, I think Janet Lowe in her book on Ben Graham actually has a little correspondence that, that, that took place between Keynes and Ben. So I would advise you to read uh, read that. And there's some letters of his that he, of Keynes's that he wrote to co-trustees of, 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 of uh, life insurance societies and, and colleges and so on that I, I think you'd find interesting too. It's 1.15 and Charlie and I have to go to our director's meeting at Berkshire which uh, starts in about 15 minutes. So we thank you all for coming. Mm -hmm.